This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, Episode 9. Today we shake, not stir, things up a little with our analysis of the latest 007 film, Spectre. Will this feature help the franchise live to die another day, or is it time to revoke Bond's license to kill? I am your host, Jeff. And I'm your co-host, Harry. And today we have a very special guest, Andrew. Hey guys, thank you for having me. Andrew! (laughs) Long time no see. Yeah, or it's here. been a long time. I really appreciate the offer to uh, to join you guys on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk about this movie tonight. Yeah, it should be a good time. So, Andrew, as is our custom with the numerous guest stars that we've had on the show, why don't you give our listeners an idea of yourself, your history with film, growing up, you know, what are some of the big influences for you and that sort of thing? Well, I think I, as a recent admirer of movies, if you want to put it that way, my Blu-ray collection has grown to the point where it's definitely going to allow me to be single for a prolonged period of time if any woman <laughs> walks into my apartment and looks at it. But really, it's been over the last few years getting pieces of advice or advice from guys and friends in regards to what movies to watch. But growing up, for me, it's like big fan of The Goonies growing up. That was a big influence on my life. Star Trek, of course, like all of the the original movies Those were movies that I watched on a regular basis. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited about today is that Bond was a big part of my life growing up as well, given the fact that my dad was was into the Bond flicks. He read all the original books. So whenever there was a new Bond that came out, we, we certainly went out to go watch it. So definitely a lot of movies that have influenced me, but only recently have I got really deep into everything about movies. So I'm, as I said, I'm really excited to be joining you guys tonight. Okay, great. Hey, good choice with the Goonies, man. That's, that's a, that's an eighties classic for sure. So is that your favorite movie of all time? Oh, gosh, no, no. My favorite movie of all time, and this is probably going to cause a lot of chuckles, is I don't get why it didn't win more awards, uh, but The Rock. Like, that is really a cinematic masterpiece. (laughs) Hey, man, I love The Rock. (laughs) Nicolas Cage. It's the reason I bought a PlayStation 3. No, I I just love everything about The Rock. And yeah, it's one of those movies that it's not necessarily going to win awards, but it's just one that really stuck with me to the point, like, I I can't stop watching it, but... Yeah, there are definitely other movies that are of higher caliber than that one. But for me, The Rock I, I easily is the, my favorite movie of all time. Hey, I love I love The Rock too. That's uh, that's an underrated. I don't want to say masterpiece, but it's well, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's as close of a masterpiece you're going to get to dealing with Michael Bay. Yeah, for sure. That that's that's the peak of his career. There's no question there. Yeah. yeah, Andrew, if you could then separate yourself from what your favorite movie is, what would you say, in your opinion, is the best? movie that you've seen oh gosh that's a tough one well it's the thing is it tends to change like it's a matter of like what my current mindset is what my mood is well how about Um, you give a couple you don't have to say the best yeah yeah a couple well the one that i'm staring at right now and granted it's got the largest font on my shelf but uh citizen kane is certainly a great movie uh it's one of those that like growing up of course like when you're younger you just don't appreciate a movie like that but then when you get older something like that really resonates with you so it's citizen kane is definitely one i'm always a big sucker for war movies so i, I think another one that i would definitely say is saving private ryan that was one of the most yeah. well put together war movies of all time like 
these aren't necessarily like my favorite movies, but there's just so many that I've watched that in order to, to like, really distinguish them, I'd probably have to go by genre. But those are two that, that definitely stick out since I'm being put on the spot right now. I should have prepared a little bit better for this. They're, no, no, they're good choices, man. Uh, but speaking yeah. of now genre, what about what's your go-to genre? Actually, what's your go-to genre or favorite genre? Or maybe what's the genre you least like or tend to avoid? I love sci-fi. That's something, as I mentioned, like growing up on Star Trek, like it was always Star Trek. I didn't watch the Star Wars trilogy till I was in junior high. Like it was one of those that growing up, it was just Star Trek continuously in the household. But sci-fi has always resonated with me. And there's so much about sci-fi and the way that it's evolved over the last few years. Like one of the shows that I didn't watch when it was on TV that I got into over the last few years, like Battlestar Galactica. And I don't think it gets enough credit. Like uh, it's just... Sci-fi is one of those genres that I believe can appeal to all all ages and all walks of life. So that that's definitely a go-to. If I had to say my least favorite, I would definitely go with like love stories. Rom-coms, you mean? Uh, rom-coms, I don't mind so much, but more of like just uh, oh, I should I shouldn't say this since I'm trying to get a girlfriend, but it's just like you have to sit through this movie where they're just it's all about this couple that's it's pre-programmed. Like it seems like they're cut and paste over the last few years, and rom-coms are kind of like that. But it's just those, yeah, I'm not a big fan of those romantic movies. Yeah, some some of them are tough as well. Some of them are good, but some of them are tough as well, for sure. Yeah, but I, yeah. I want to at least try everything. Like, it's not something that I, I will dismiss anything. Like, I definitely want to give, uh, like, foreign films is something that I got into recently. Like, I try to watch it in the original language because it just feels as if it, it, it's a lot better rather than having a dub. But I want to give at least everything a shot, and I try to get some good reviews before I go out and watch a movie. Okay, so Andrew, maybe this is a question I'd asked Harry in our first episode. Is there a movie you can think of that maybe as, uh, whether as a kid or as a young man, that you didn't think too much of, but it grew in your eyes over time, and now is a movie that you enjoy more? Gosh, i got to think about that one a little bit more. There's one at the tip of my tongue. God, That's all right. we, few we can come back to that one. Few... That's okay. His tongue didn't come through customs. No, it was... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's still in Calgary. He's definitely not getting a girlfriend now. That's <laughs> Anyway, so what about the reverse? What about a movie that you really enjoyed growing up that nowadays isn't quite so good? I hate saying this because I watched it, I think, about 10 times in theaters. Ghostbusters 2. You uh, saw that 10 times in theaters? Well, yeah. when the first one came out, I was three, so I didn't really know what was going on. And I believe in between the first and the second, that's when the real Ghostbusters was on, was a cartoon. So I was really into that. Like Ghostbusters was like the movie for me. And then I watched Ghostbusters 2 nonstop in the theaters because I thought it was hilarious. And then now going back to it, like it still has that emotional appeal to it, but it's definitely not at the same level as the original movie. And like growing up, I'd always say that the second one was better than the first one. But then you rewatch it, and you're like, ugh. It's like, I, and you guys are going to kill me for this one. Like growing up, I had never seen the original Caddyshack. I grew wow. up on Caddyshack yeah. 2 because my friend from elementary always watched it. So I thought that was like the pinnacle of comedies. And then I watched the original. I'm like, oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up too, like my parents weren't into pop culture. So like I didn't really get into music till over the last like 10 years. And the same goes for movies. Like it was streamlined. I may get chastised for this one, but one that I loved growing up that looking back on now that I can think about it uh, is actually the original Batman with Michael Keaton. I, I loved it, but coming back and watching it now, I don't think it really has the same impact as like the the recent batman trilogy from christopher nolan in regards to like how it really captures the spirit of the character like the first one like spoiler alert him basically a killing joker like that was 
or allowing Joker to die, like that, that was just completely against the character. And the machine guns, the Batmobile, it's just like it just doesn't capture the spirit of the, the character. It's fun to watch, but it's not as good as when I was watching it as a kid. Interesting. No, that is interesting. And I, I mean, I feel much the same way actually about Batman and about Ghostbusters too, coincidentally. So, uh, no, thank you very much, Andrew, for uh, introducing yourself there. So, Harry, I'm going to just turn to you for a quick second here. We're obviously talking about Spectre today. But I know that you're a James Bond fan. Your history with the franchise goes way back. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your experience growing up with uh, with the franchise and what your memories are with the James Bond films over time? Yeah, as an 80s kid, obviously, and with my dad being also a Bond fan, we would always, whenever the movie came on TV, we would watch it or I'd see him watch it and then I'd join him for the bulk of the movies as a kid of the 80s again that was the roger moore timothy dalton kind of era so i think i saw more of the roger moore movies at first and i used to love the roger moore movies when i was younger and then i got exposed to some of the earlier bond movies with sean connery and then i started deviating towards them and then you know and then i just kind of had like i didn't really have a favorite bond i was just kind of i had like favorite movies at the time and then, you know, I had a big problem with when Timothy Dalton came aboard, but then later had an appreciation for Dalton. And then the same with all the other ones. Then, you know, Pierce Brosnan came, there was a break and then Pierce Brosnan came. And then I think that was the only one where I kind of didn't, I was a little older. I was uh, just starting university, I think when GoldenEye first hit, or it was like the last year of high school, something like that. And um, and I remember enjoying that quite a bit. And then I loved the Pierce Brosnan movies at the time and I love, I still love him as Bond. And then the Daniel Craig ones came, and then, yeah, like a lot of Bond fans, you know, a little hesitant at uh, the pick of Daniel Craig, but we can talk about how well he's done, if my opinion has changed or not. But yeah, Bond has always been a staple of my childhood, but it's never been my go-to franchise. I have other friends that that's their franchise, that's the everything to them, but it's not everything to me. I was still a little bit more in the heavier action, like with Rambo and Predator and a little bit of the sci-fi action with Terminator and stuff like that, but Bond was still always there with me. I still loved it. Okay. Bond wasn't a big part of my childhood growing up. In fact, the first Bond movie that I saw was Goldeneye. What? Uh, yeah. Goldeneye was the first Bond movie that I experienced. I went to opening night when it was released in the theater, and I absolutely loved it. Probably still my favorite Bond movie to this day. Uh, and then after that, because I enjoyed it so much, I went back and experienced the franchise back from there. So... It was, you know, there's a lot of movies to go through. So it took a couple of years, you know, before everything was on DVD, there's rights issues. So it's hard to hard to find all of these movies in one place uh, before the last couple of years here. So it did take a little while for me to get through them all. But I've seen every every film in the in the franchise multiple times. Uh, you know, I have I have my favorites. Unfortunately for me, you know, a few of them start to meld together a bit. Uh, I think that some of the tropes of the franchise, which some of the things that we look forward to also do a disservice to it by, you know, making it just a, a little bit monochromatic, if you will. So, uh, you know, I remember watching the Roger Moore films and being a little surprised that it lasted through that. The Sean Connery films, you know, some are really great. But yeah, I, I you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of the franchise. I, I was excited with Daniel Craig as a choice. I love the departure from how they used to do these films to how they did Casino Royale. So. I think that what's cool about it is that every actor who's played Bond has brought something new and unique to the role that fits with the character and, and expands it 
while still being consistent. That's that's very unique in film. We don't have an example of that anywhere else. And, and that's true. It's it's actually quite amazing that they've been able to pull it off with all these different actors. Like in my opinion, I would say and I think I might be in the minority in terms of the modern geek world that I think Lazenby is the weakest bond, but I know that I think believe Jeff and hearing conversations about you before you've been a fan of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Lazenby himself. How about you, Andrew? Wow, that is a perfect segue because Honor Majesty's Secret Service is by far my favorite Bond movie. It's my go-to. It's one of those Bond movies that I think at the time that it was made, it's shot very well for being made in the 60s. I wouldn't say Lazenby is my favorite Bond by any means. I think he's certainly maligned based upon what you hear when you you watch behind the scenes and you listen to the commentary. Like he just was an absolute pain to deal with on set. But his performance in the movie, I didn't think was that bad. Granted, like in comparison to Sean Connery, like who, in my opinion, is the the greatest Bond. Like it's very difficult to fill shoes like that. But Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I I think that's the perfect Bond film and all different levels and kind of ties into Spectre. But I'll leave my opinions and my comparisons uh, a little bit later when we talk about that movie yeah yeah no no sounds that's, good that's one of my favorites as well i mean lazenby is certainly not his performance wasn't the greatest there's no question there but the film itself i think holds up very very well uh, i think yeah. that's one of the better bond films lazenby was okay yeah for I, I guys unfairly maligned yeah he, he was fine i completely disagree but that's okay <laughs> No, well, like, let's slow down now. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, okay. think, I think it's overrated garbage, but that's okay. Overrated wow. garbage, you say? <laughs> wow, that, okay. that's that's gonna be a new movie ratings right there. Like different <laughs> levels. Areas like overrated garbage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your opinions are your opinions. And yeah, but uh, you're wrong, so it's okay. The world's gonna have to leave it at that because there really is no other explanation. <laughs> no, actually, my I mean, yeah. GoldenEye's up there is not my favorite. I love Casino Royale. I love Thunderball's probably my favorite out of all of them, in my opinion. I also love You Only Live Twice. I also oh, you like You Only Live Twice? Yeah, I like You Only Live Twice. And I also like For Your Eyes Only is one of the Roger Moore ones. And The Living Daylights from Dalton. Those are my, like, upper ones. And, you know, some of the other ones are a little lower, mediocre. Some of them are really terrible. Like, Moonraker is by far the, the worst one, in my opinion. Yeah, but as a kid, like, Moonraker was so, like, this is one of those, like, growing up, I loved Roger Moore, like, Moonraker, the whole thought of, like, Bond fighting in space with lasers. It's like, oh, this is so amazing. And you go back, you watch, you're like, yeah. When you have pigeons doing triple takes, I'm sorry, there's just something wrong with the picture. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a good movie. Not <laughs> at all. Yet, I think it might still be better than Tomorrow Never Dies. Just to throw yeah, yeah. Tomorrow there. Never Dies has a real bad story and villain. So that's pretty bad. Yeah. Even though I like Jonathan Price, I just think he was used poorly. Used poorly. Yeah, that movie was a mess. Yes, agree. Yeah, badly written, terrible idea. Did not come together at all. No. All right. Well, why don't we dive into this, guys? Uh, any other any other thoughts before we jump into Spectre? I don't know if you want to get to, into it now. We can get into it later. But maybe do you want to have a quick chat about the Daniel Craig franchise? I was thinking we'll we'll do that after. Sure. Okay. All right, Spectre. It's Bond versus zombies. All right. Actually, it's Mexico City during the Day of the Dead celebration. The streets are filled with people dressed up as skeletons, ghouls, and specters. Bond, looking very dapper in his skeleton suit, 
tracks a mysterious white-suited man through the streets and across the rooftops. During a surveillance, he discovers a little terror cell is going to blow up a stadium tonight. Good thing Bond is here. He snipes a couple bad guys like he's camping the respawn point in the temple. Everything blows up. Bond runs down the man in the white suit, shows some fancy helicopter piloting skills, and he's pulled a mysterious ring from the finger of his opponent with a strange octopus-like symbol engraved on it. Cue music. After the riot act is read to him by M, Bond waits in his flat for Moneypenny, who has his personal effects from Skyfall. Moneypenny can't understand his motivations, so he shows her a message from M, the old M. Apparently, there's a funeral to attend in Rome, but it's going to be tough. Q has been ordered to implant Bond with some techie tech in order to keep track of the rogue agent. He manages to buy himself 48 hours, and it's off to Rome. There's also the matter of Bond's personal effects from Skyfall, namely a certificate of guardianship from young James and a photo of a man standing with two boys. Could this be Bond's family? Bond tracks down the widow of the man he killed in Mexico. He needs information. Using his classic charm, he learns the location of a meeting of all the bad guys, like all of them. Seriously, it's like a bad guy convention in there. Bond uses the ring as his passport in, but it's not all good. A brief power struggle ensues on the floor. We witness the introduction of the muscled henchman in the tradition of Oddjob and Jaws, who likes to pry out eyeballs with his metal thumbnails. What's this guy's name? Thumbnail? Handjob? Well, he's a bad mother anyway. The shadowy leader of this group calls out Bond. He's known he was there all along, and it's time to bail. He crashes out a window and slips into a sweet Volkswagen Beetle to a... Well, sorry, that's the bulletproof Aston Martin DB10, because of course it is. He zips through the narrow streets of Rome with handjob, I mean thumbnail, and hot pursuit. A couple of zigs here, some zags there. Bond escapes, leaving the DB10 at the bottom of the river. Didn't even survive one chase. Back in London, Moneypenny has been running down clues and has found the location and identity of the Pale King. It's Mr. White from Quantum, and he's chilling at a lodge in Austria. Off Bond goes and makes a deal with the dying man. Give me info, and I'll make sure they don't get to your daughter. Deal made, dying villain brains on the floor, yada, 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 and Bond is now off to a mountaintop clinic to meet his next ex-girlfriend. Meanwhile, in London, MI6 is under extreme scrutiny as British intelligence is being reshuffled, and the double O program is scuttled. We're treated to him and his new boss waxing philosophical about surveillance and drones and the modern world and the value of boots on the ground and blah, blah, blah. Back to Austria and big bad thumb drive finds the body of Mr. White. He's hot on Bond's trail. At the clinic, Bond appeals to Madeline, Mr. White's daughter, for information, but she kicks him to the curb. Not smart on her part, and Mr. Handy and his boys grab her. Bond pursues in a plane. Yeah, that's right, a plane. It secures the intrepid doctor and reunites with Q at his hotel. Q has analyzed the ring and has connected all the bad guys from Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and Skyfall to a single terrorist organization called Spectre. Madeline leads Bond to a hotel in Morocco where her parents spent their anniversaries. I know what you're thinking, but she's not having a slice of Bond pie. He finds Mr. White's secret lair behind a wall, and now they have coordinates to a super-secret desert base. They hop a train, and away they go. Their pleasant dining car experience is interrupted by none other than Metal Thumb McKillerson, who rips apart the entire train with Bond's face. But a little ingenuity and a lot of heavy beer kegs go a long way, and it's bye-bye to the Thumb Wrestler. The train leaves Bond and Madeline in the desert with a huge repair bill. A mysterious car arrives for the duo and brings them to the supervillain's secret desert lair. Finally, we meet the big bad, Franz Oberhauser, who in proper Bond villain fashion explains his plan for world domination. It's all about information, surveillance. Now isn't that what Her Majesty's new Secret Service boss has been talking about? Uh Uh-oh. Now it's time for the obligatory Bond torture scene. 
It seems that after Bond's parents were killed, it was Oberhauser's father who took Bond in. But little Franz didn't like another cuckoo chilling in his nest, so he killed his father and took on his mother's family name, Blofeld. Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Bond gets a weird little drill to the face, sets off a watch bomb courtesy of Q, and he and Madeline make their escape, destroying the lair in the process. But they're not done yet. They still have to stop the implementation of Blofeld's plan in London that will provide surveillance from all over the world, right into Spectre's lap. Bond and Madeline reunite with M and Q and Money Penny in London. The plan is to get the fancy computers in the new intelligence base so Q can hack in and stop the system. Madeline doesn't want to be part of this and says goodbye. En route to the new HQ, Bond is captured and taken to the hollowed-out skeleton of the old MI6 building while M and Q get to the computers at the new complex. A handy countdown timer lets Q know how little time he has to work his nerdy hacker magic. Bond escapes his assailants and makes his way deep into the MI complex. There's Blofeld behind bulletproof glass wearing a new face scar. He has the place rigged to blow in three minutes and offers Bond a choice. Madeline is somewhere in the building and he can either die trying to save her or live knowing he let her die. Blofeld gets to the chopper and Bond scours the building looking for Madeline. He finds her, and they make their escape through a canal on a boat just as the place goes boom. And after the first-ever boat-helicopter chase to end with the boat winning, Bond confronts the broken and defeated Blofeld on a bridge, gun drawn, ready to end the threat. But as Emma said, a license to kill is also a license not to kill. And after looking his adoptive brother in the eye, he lowers his gun and walks away. The end. So, there we have Spectre, gentlemen. Uh, Andrew, I'll just ask you, as we do on the show... Just taking the plot synopsis there, listening to that. Are you compelled by this film? Well, I think you did a, a great job of summarizing the movie up. Certainly, like, as I said, like being a fan of Bond for a number of years and the return of Spectre and Blofeld, of course, like all the rumors were swirling before the movie debuted that uh, it was going to be Blofeld as the main villain. And I think Christopher Waltz was a, a perfect choice for, for the villain. I love the synopsis. There is a but, but I, I will leave that discussion for a little bit later. Okay. All right. Uh, Harry, what about you? Are you digging this so far? Um, I like the first part. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what it didn't hit me until now, and I just wrote it while you were doing your synopsis, which was good. Information, generic plot line, reminded me of Terminator Genesis. And I just wrote it down, and it's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> we're in trouble. We're... <laughs> anyway, that's the first thing. That's my first thought. It's like, didn't okay. I just see this in Terminator Genesis? And maybe a lot of other movies that I can't think on the top of my head. The worry I had from the trailers, and we can get into it later, they kind of gave it away, was that whether this guy was Blofeld or not, the, the, the main bad guy here was related to Bond in some way. And mm -hmm. we'll get into that later. I think that's a main discussion topic. That was a worry of mine. It, it came true. It was pretty obvious from the trailers. Again, stupid studio companies. Uh, no need to give this crap away during the movie trailers, but they never learned. So... Yeah, my first thoughts are, I mean, good synopsis, but my first thoughts are I'm watching term, part of Terminator Genesis, whether you guys agree or not. Well, I, I hadn't made that note, but I think that, you know, obviously it's it's in the public consciousness right now, surveillance, drones. And that makes sense that we're seeing, you know, movies and books deal with this with these topics. And that's, you know, and that's great. The, the best art always uh, is always topical. My issue is that it doesn't make any meaningful commentary yes. on these topics. Yeah, you're doing what other movies have done. Are you doing yeah. it better? So that's yeah. something we can get into. That's something we can get into. So I'm going to hit you guys with a little bit of trivia here. 
before we kind of break down scene by scene. What I found most interesting here is the use of Spectre. Now, this is the first time we've seen the use of Spectre in many decades. And do either of you know the reason why we have not yet seen Spectre? It's called uh, Quantum before because it's a rights issue. Yeah. So the rights issue. So what happened is way back, there was a producer by the name of Kevin McClory, and he was one of a trio of writers, including including Ian Fleming. And they wrote a screen treatment for a film that Fleming then based his novel Thunderball on. And then the subsequent film was based on that. So this McClory character retained the rights to Spectre and to the Blofeld character. He also owned the remake rights to Thunderball which he exercised in 1983 with Never Say Never Again. Which, so that was a remake of Thunderball. So numerous scripts had been written over the years, and they had to be modified and rewritten in order to change Spectre and Blofeld to other things. So they were actually parts of a lot of scripts after the fact, but they always had to be written out. Uh, and then uh, the rights issue was... So when they were doing Quantum of Solace, Quantum was originally envisioned as Spectre, but because they couldn't use the term, they went with Quantum. And then, uh, you know, the rights issues were eventually obviously settled, and they were able to bring everything back under under one roof. So decades-long battle to get the rights to the goofy name of Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Hey, man, and, that's a great name. Uh, yeah, it's a great Bond villain name. There's yeah. no question about that. You'd be a good Blofeld. I would be a good Blofeld. Actually. No, no, just just your name should be Blofeld, and you don't do anything with it. That suits you. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> thanks, thanks for nothing. <laughs> All right, so let's just kind of go uh, scene by scene here. So we open with a shot over a street in Mexico City. We see a, a man dressed in a white suit, and then another man in a suit uh, with a woman there. It's got the cool skeleton on there, and we follow them as they walk through the streets. They follow them up through corridor into a hotel into a room and we're in we're in a room there and we see that it's bond wearing the wearing the suit so i just wanted to ask you guys what you thought of the opening scene here yeah i remember getting kind of a heads up about this because i was watching i think jeremy johns it was his movie review before i went to go watch oh the movie. i love that guy Guy's awesome. I only recently discovered his YouTube channel. Oh, man. He's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I love his Star Wars stuff. It's great. (laughs) I remember him saying, and I will leave his opinions about Spectre to the side, but one of the things he mentioned was that the opening scene is worth the price of admission in itself. And I thought the the opening sequence was shot beautifully. Like, for the majority of it, it looked like one of those one-shot sequences, which, if done right, is just, it's amazing to, to see. And in terms of the the opening sequences, I found it to be one of the stronger entries for Bond. It was just shot beautifully, and I think it was a, a great opening to the movie, and it certainly drew me in. So that's my initial opinions of it. Yeah, I like the opening scene. I mean, there's a significance for, you know, Day of the Dead. So it's like signifying Spectre's reemergence. They weren't once dead. Now they're coming back. I did love the scene. I love the uniform or the costume that Bond has with the skeleton. Just looks really cool. Interesting to note that the guy, in my opinion, so this is not something I'm reading, just my take. He's chasing a guy who's dressed in white. So again, Mr. White, kind of like a hidden reference for that guy he's going to be finding later. Like that guy's name was Mr. White, correct? Or that. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I don't know if that was there. They threw that in there on purpose or if it was just, he was just dressed in white because it's easier to follow that guy through a whole crowd of costume people in costume. So for visual purposes. So I thought that was interesting. But I did like the opening scene. 
I think once they got into the helicopter, it kind of became a little bit mundane and generic, but I liked everything up to there. I just love how, you know, classic Bond, he's about to nail some broad and then he just, you know, just gets out on the balcony and starts leaving. It's like, just, just give me a minute. <laughs> you know, I'll, be, I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> so I love that scene. And But yeah, when it really got into the action, I, mean, I love the chase. But once he got into the helicopter, it was it fell a little flat for me. But overall, I liked the opening sequence quite a bit. I agree with you there. I think the uh, the helicopter scenes, they don't really provide a whole lot of tension. The Most of the excitement here is is the chase where he's falling through the streets there. I thought that was really well executed. Andrew, you said you mentioned uh, how it's made to look like one shot for a lot, uh, right up until when he's sort of spying uh, through the window with the uh, sniper rifle. There are a couple of digital cuts there. Uh, I think there were only two, at least that I could spot, uh, but certainly very well executed, especially if you guys remember after he sort of jumps out of the window of his hotel room and he starts, he's sort of walking towards the camera and the camera pulls yeah, back and that's he's one just shot. walking on the rooftops. That's all one shot. That's very, very impressive. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, it was filmed very yeah. well, but again, what starts to worry me here, and I noticed this even upon, the, like I only watched it once, but right away... I noticed the reuse of some of the musical tracks from Skyfall, from the opening sequence in Skyfall mm. to here. It was the same exact musical track. So they started, I noticed they were starting to get a bit lazy and that just, you know, a light bulb just went off in the top of my head and they go, uh oh, I, I hope, you know, well, hope it doesn't, I, I, doesn't start repeating we, itself. I see what you're saying. Uh, so do you think that that was lazy or are they trying to establish some direct continuity thematically and stylistically to support, you know, the story continuity between Skyfall and Spectre. So I'll answer that, that exact same track, because you know what, remember in Skyfall when he starts chasing the guy who's got those files on yep. the train and they're going through the marketplace and they're going on to the train. So the track was used, copied from the ad opening sequence to here. And then again, it was used again in that chase with your thumbnail uh, henchman in the streets of Rome chasing bond hmm. so again we're starting to get the reuse of this it's just something that just kind of a light bulb just goes off my head and go okay now we're something i hadn't experienced before in any of the daniel craig movies was the reuse of i'm not talking about the reuse of the bond theme i'm talking about a reuse of a whole musical action track from before from skyfall to now that hadn't happened right. in my from what i remember that hasn't happened yet before this is the first instance of it and then it happened again in another action scene so i'm going uh-oh so just a warning sign for me, but yeah, I just found yep. that interesting. Definitely a good catch. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, okay. So we get through the helicopter scene. There, he he finds the ring, which we see the logo on for Spectre, and then cue the opening musical track. So just a little bit of trivia here. So the the name of the song is uh, "The Writings on the Wall" by Sam Smith. It's the fifth Bond song to not bear the title of the film itself. So out of 20, uh, 25 films, only five have not shared the title of the film. Uh, and Sam Smith is the third British male singer to uh, to perform the opening track. Harry, what did you think of the opening song and the sequence? Sequence, the visuals were fine. I mean, I like all the use of, you know, obviously Spectre, the symbols and octopus. So and all the reaching arms into everywhere. You know, I think it, like its reaches everywhere globally. So I like the, mm. the visual use of that symbol and that what it represents and that its reach, its dread. The song itself, pretty ho-hum on it. I might be, I think this is the weakest of all the four Daniel Craig movie opening credit songs. It definitely wasn't one to, to write home about. Like, I, I'm just actually just pulling up my iTunes Bond playlist because I have all the Bond themes on it. And it's one of those where like, 
each opening song certainly evokes feelings of the movie itself. And to be quite honest, I think ever since uh, You Know My Name by Chris Cornell. Oh, for, such a know, great song. Oh, that was fuck. great. Definitely one of the best. Yeah. yeah. And, and the opening title sequence for that movie as well, like with yeah, all the cards like playing out, I thought it was unbelievable. With this one, I kind of tuned out. Like when you're going to ask for like feedback about it, like as soon as the song started playing, I, I'm not really interested in this. Like, yeah, the visuals were great. And with Bond, you kind of expect that. There's nothing really that's going to wow you when it comes to the opening title sequences anymore. But yeah, I'm going to definitely side with Harry that I think this was certainly the, the weakest of the Daniel Craig. And I just expect more from a Bond uh, So do I. Song. I. You know, I can't, I can, you know, I'd have to go back and watch all the other Bond movies or listen to the songs, but this might even be up there in terms of the weakest out of all of them, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's not it's not notable. There's nothing interesting here at all. I mean, even with some of the older films, there might be songs that aren't great, but they they still had a feel to them that was you you knew you were watching a Bond film. And the this, man this, with yeah. the golden Generic. gun. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was right yeah. on the nose, but it... <laughs> I, I basically thought the next one. Listen. Exactly. We should have the opening sequence for the next podcast be you singing whatever movie or theme song is associated with that. Like well, I'll do my best to do the Bill Murray impression of the next one we're going to do. Oh, <laughs> I love that song. I know what you're talking about. Quick segue. Since we're talking about the song, these opening intros and songs are so much of what these Bond movies are because they're just in great that style is ingrained into pop culture. I just wanted to ask you, just a quick segue, just name your favorite Bond song from any of the other movies. Not just Daniel Craig, all of them. What's your favorite one? My favorite one, it's going to be a tie, I think. Live and Let Die, the song. I hate the fucking movie, but I love the song. And um, View to a Kill. Ah, Good choice. Those are two fantastic. I was looking at both of those ones, like View to a Kill, that was my favorite Roger Moore movie. Anything with Christopher Walken in it is just spectacular. Fast whole... ship. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my life goals is to get down a Christopher Walken impression. I think that's really going to help me get a girlfriend. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to work on it myself. <laughs> uh, certainly those two are fantastic. I Two that I really like. Goldeneye I thought was like really good for the movie. Tina Turner did a great job with it. But we just talked about it. You know my name. Maybe it was like what I was going through during that time. But I think Chris Cornell nailed that for the reimagining and the restart for the, the Bond franchise. Those, but the ones that you mentioned, Jeff, those are two of my favorites as well. Yeah, I'm gonna have to pretty much side with Andrew. I think View to a Kill and You Know My Name, like from Casino Royale, is is the best ones. You know, it's pretty up there for me. But also Thunderball is a pretty awesome. Even though it's like very dated, it's still a great Bond song. Love it. All right. So uh, let's move on from there. We arrive in London. Bond is getting the typical chewing out from M. Not a whole, a whole lot happening here. The new boss arrives, who uh, Bond christens with the new name of C, which could uh, have a variety of, of meanings, obviously. <laughs> what did you guys think? What was C? Uh, what did C stand for? Cunt. That's what I thought, too. <laughs> I was exactly like, not a word that I'm going to repeat on a podcast, but thank <laughs> Sorry, you, Harry, for summing that one. Yeah, no. No, no worries. <laughs> we're, we're family friendly, man. Come on. We got to learn about it sometimes. It's a family show. Exactly. Yeah. Grown up family. Dysfunctional, but Especially show. every single time you introduce Harry to a new member of your family or a close circle of friends <laughs> that comes with a disclaimer. So you cannot be held accountable for any of the thoughts and opinions expressed by Harry. It's just 
one of those things that I've memorized <laughs> down pat when talking to people. Yeah, exactly. So the only, you know, relevant stuff here is, you know, we know that Money Penny has Bond's effects, Guyfall. There's a new head of intelligence here. Uh, looks like they might not be getting along, and that's pretty much it. We get to Bond's flat, and apparently a considerable amount of effort went into how Bond's home should look. And Daniel Craig had a fair bit of input into how, how it looked. I thought this was an interesting window into the character here, but I want to hear what uh, you guys have to say about that. So, Andrew, what did you think about the look of Bond's home here? I still found it too decorated. Like, it's <laughs> like when you, when you no, think of it with Bond, like, yeah, like, certainly he's got style. He knows, I would imagine, how to decorate his own apartment. But for a guy that's always traveling around the world, doesn't have any roots really like you'd expect the apartment to be fairly bare like he wouldn't have many effects or many articles that he would be attached to because like just that's the nature of his character i still found it to be a little too decorated for a guy like bond but that's that's just me i agree with you that's the most logical sense andrew is that a guy who's a spy and who travels as much as bond does not have any time whatsoever to organize or decorate or furnish his home so in that in terms of a gritty realism I agree. That's probably the most logical approach, and I cannot fault this film for that. But in my opinion, they lost an opportunity here to kind of give small insights into maybe who Bond is. I mean, I don't know if we really want to know that too much, because I think the Daniel Craig films have kind of, you know, dipped into dipped their toes into that water a little bit too much instead of focusing on the classic Bond adventure per se. But I think they could have done something subtle here, even with like a piece of art. I don't know. You know, it give an interesting insight to who this guy is. Maybe he had a bunch of X-rated artifacts around his room. Who knows? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, like he's got a horse <laughs> in the corner or something. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Remind you know what this reminded me of, Jeff? Is um, who's that guy? Elaine. Who who did Elaine work for in Seinfeld? What was uh, that guy's name? Peterman? Yeah, Peterman. This is Peterman. Yeah. This is it, oh, it's just a place to flop. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did miss out with like an opportunity to establish that continuity. Like they did it a perfect way with Skyfall, like kind of paying homage to the old Bonds. And there could have been an opportunity to have like just little various artifacts that, well, of course, it's not the same universe as the, the older Bonds, but just having tie-ins to previous movies, I think would have been a nice little touch or like a comical aspect to be like, he has a picture of M next to his bed. And then like, as money walks in, he's like, you didn't see this. And like, Closes it. He's like, this is going to be tough to explain. <laughs> that might have been the most effective thing to do is do a a, fun, a little funny, humorous artifact in his flat. There, I actually thought that the impression that I got from the how they laid this out was that Bond himself didn't really know how to set up a flat, so he just set it up how he thought a normal person might do it. You know, there's a TV, there's a couch, there's a coffee table, and that was it. And there's nothing meaningful for him there because. There isn't anything meaningful to him, right? He doesn't have anything of value. It's and, and that's him and his job. And I think they did that on purpose as well, because that's kind of a loose thread that they're going to try and tie up in this yeah. film at the end. Yeah. He's got nothing outside of his work. That's right. Exactly. So Money Penny arrives. She gives him the box of the artifacts that are recovered from Skyfall. We get a glimpse of a photograph, a certificate of guardianship. So we're getting intimations here of Bond's past. Obviously, you know, we're meant to believe that uh, something's happening here 
for the future, but we're not exactly sure what. The most telling detail, obviously, is the sort of the faded out, burnt out face of the other other individual in the photograph. So we've got some mystery here, some intrigue. Then we get some You know more... what, though? That would be funny yeah. if they actually, just like in Last Crusade, they pull up this old photo of like Indiana Jones looking at his father and you can tell young Sean Connery or something like that. Like they fudged it a little bit. Another opportunity. They could have done this. Just made that old father look like Sean Connery. Make him look like Sean Connery for no reason. <laughs> yeah, just for no reason at all. Yeah, that would have been fun. Well, um, actually, the, the caretaker for Skyfall, I believe, if I remember correctly, reading or watching the behind the scenes, they originally had hoped that Sean Connery would be that protector of Skyfall in the previous movie. But I think... I agree with you. The minute he pops up, though, that's over. it's over. Well, I'm interested in that old caretaker then, not, yeah, not James Bond. I, I think yeah. that would have been a, a neat little thing. But I think you hit the nail on the head is that... Yeah, it's nice to kind of have those homage to the uh, the past, like having Sean Connery be a part of it. I think Sean Connery as a villain would be fantastic. That's another topic. Should have been um, Shatner. Should have been Shatner. Uh, oh my God, here comes Shatner. That doesn't, go. that doesn't work at all. Yeah, Avery Brooks could be a Bond villain because dude's actually crazy. <laughs> he played it know, perfectly. Hippocrates Villa. The, they have to sign him out of the asylum, though, and that might be liability issues there, I think. <laughs> On my island. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he played the perfect Bond villain. I want him. Oh, he did, though. He did play that Bond villain. Remember Dr. Noah in that? Oh, Hippocrates uh, Noah. It, he's the best. Hippocrates Noah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I don't think the world's not big enough for that much awesome. Well, the world's not ready yet. It's not no, ready. It's not ready. No, no. 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 We'll be ready <laughs> when it's ready for us, right? When we hit it big, he's coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on. So we get a scene with Bond and the other guy. Uh, they're in a they're in a boat. They they pass the new national security building uh, that's across the river from the old MI6 building, and uh, this is where we learn that things are changing. Intelligence is moving to the future. The Double O program is at risk here. And a couple of days of some fancy meeting in Tokyo to intelligence cooperation. I, I got to be honest, guys, I'm getting lost at this point. And even this early in the film, when they start talking about this gobbledygook about the intelligence and the whole thing, I'm, I'm starting to get a little exhausted. What do you guys think? It felt recycled. I think that's where once, and I think watching Jeremy Johns, I think he was the one who brought it up. It kind of felt like Mission Impossible. And it's one of those where you kind of heard the plot before. Like, granted, the characters that are involved are a little bit different, and it's got that Bond element. But I didn't feel as if it was a unique story to Bond. And so once you heard about it, it's like, oh, yeah, we feel as if, like, MI6 is, like, it's beyond its point of use, and it needs to be integrated into the government, more oversight. I'm like, we've heard this before. Like, this isn't a unique story. No, it's a recycled story element. But again, as you said, Jeff, they're trying to keep it, I guess, relevant because yeah. of it's all about information. We don't need guys on the ground. We can do, even if tensions build between Russia and the U.S., it's it's not going to be the same Cold War anymore. It's going right. to be something different, right? And that's what it's yeah. trying to represent. So I appreciate that, but they really didn't do a good enough job throughout the rest of the film to really explore this element. It was just like, yeah, yeah, you, know, you guys are too old. You know, it's kind of like almost what M said in Goldeneye to Pierce Brosnan. Here, you're just a, a dinosaur. Yeah. You know, so you guys are dinosaurs. We've got something better here. And yeah, it's a recycled plot element. Yeah. It, there, I think there's two things here, Harry. Like you said, we've been treated to this idea of 007 as a dinosaur for the last, you know, 10 movies going back to Goldeneye. We're also treated to this, you know, this is setting up Bond as the rogue agent 
again, as he's been in every single Daniel Craig movie. Back in the old days, he was on mission almost all the time. And so I, I don't know, I'm getting a little tired of that aspect. And I agree. I miss the old days where Bond would be fashionably late to one of those big, massive mission mm -hmm. briefings. And it's like, you know, M chastises him, you know, now that we're all here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I miss those meetings, you know, like where he would get a, a dossier and he'd be like looking through it, leafing through it, talking to M about it or other people about it or the minister here. Yeah, it's just every single time. And you know what? These Daniel Craig movies have obviously been inspired too much by the Bourne movies. I think Bourne and I think to some extent, as Andrew mentioned, uh, Mission Impossible as well. Yeah. Yeah. And just the idea of he's always doing it on his own. Yeah. He's always going again. Like there's no mission for the guy. And by doing that, you lose a sense of fun. You lose a sense of purpose as well. Yeah. And I think you highlight like when the effective villains are played out. Like for like, example, Goldeneye. I think one of the best Bond villains of all time was Sean Bean. Like because you see that element of the cooperation at the beginning of the movie between – I always forget. I think he was 006 or 009. Like you see that cooperation within the double O's. And so you get a sense of that community. But all of these movies in the Daniel Craig franchise have been, as you guys mentioned, him on his own. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, it's a lost opportunity to explore the relationship between the double O's. And I agree. And, yeah. and you come down to it, Andrew, it's a good point. As you mentioned, the world building here, like there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, it's hard to world build bond. So it's not an easy task, but. I've always wanted the double O program and MI6 to be a bit bigger than what's represented on the screen. Mm. You got a sense of that in the Connery movies and the Moore movies and the Dalton movies to an extent, but here in the Daniel Craig movies, it just seems like it's only Bond. That's all I got, guys. I got Bond. He's doing his it's own like thing. A, Sorry. <laughs> it's like a Marvel spinoff. Like, I love the Winter Soldier, but you're like, where are the rest of the Avengers? Like, all of a sudden, like, no one wants to show up and help. Like, where's Iron Man? Where's the Hulk? And, like, in these situations, you're like, there's got to be more double O's than double O seven dealing yeah. with this situation. Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's something they're saving where all of a sudden all of the double O's show up and there's this big, massive fight to end the Bond franchise. I don't know. But it's just, it's different. Like I, the I, end of Thunderbolt. That would have been sweet. I kind of, I mean, I kind of disagree because I like that. You know, we know that there are other double O agents and we get a reference to them every once in a while. And it's, I always get a thrill when we hear about another double O. I mean, I love Sean Bean, double O six in Goldeneye. I thought that was so awesome that they, that they went that way there. Uh, we do get a mention of double O nine in this film here. Yeah, and you get to uh, listen to his uh, playlist as well. Yeah, we get to listen <laughs> to his playlist. So, I, I mean, I agree. I, I would like if we got a better feeling of the larger world here of the double O program of the other agents that are out there. But to be honest, I don't really want to see it. I just kind of want to get a glimpse and get a feel for it. I think that builds the world in a much more intriguing way because it's still about bond, but to know that he's not the only one out there is, is kind of cool, but I don't really want to peek behind the curtain on that. Yeah. I think like what Harry mentioned earlier, where like Bond shows up to a meeting and all you see is like the backs of all the double O's as they're leaving the meeting. And M looks at him and was like, we just finished. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be kind of cool. So you don't ever see the other double O's, but you know, they exist. All right. As we, uh, so here's, so we get to the new Q, uh, the Q branch and Bond gets some bizarre nanobot, smart blood tracking bullshit stuff going on. 
and then we get we see the new car, the new Aston Martin DB10, which has been reassigned to the aforementioned 009. So I'll hit you guys with a little bit of trivia here. Aston Martin obviously has a long history with the Bond franchise. This particular model, the Aston Martin DB10, is one of only 10 models made. It was specifically designed for this film so that as it existed in Spectre, that was a one-of-a-kind model. Only 10 will be will be made. So I thought that was kind of neat there. That's pretty cool. Good-looking car, definitely. We know it's destined for horrible destruction in some form. Coming up, he gets a new watch. There's a little sort of playful innuendo here about the alarm for the watch. I don't find this new cue... I know he's been in the last one, uh, too compelling. What do you guys think of? Yeah, I was going to bring it up. I was going to ask you what you guys think of this cue. I I don't think he has the personality or the gravitas to play this role. I don't know if it's just miscast or it's an age thing or or what's presented on screen. I don't know. I thought it was an age thing. Our classic cue who played the character all the way up until the final Brosnan film, if I'm correct. Uh, I don't think... I think he was only there till. The second, the second last one. Last. Yeah, second last. Second the, wor- the world is not yeah. enough, yeah. Yeah, and then he passed away in a car yeah. accident, if I, if I recall. Um, but yeah. he was fantastic. I mean, he, but he had sort of the, the wisdom and Obi-Wan Kenobi feel to him, which I felt complimented Bond very, very well. Making him a younger character, I don't think, it just doesn't work. Like, he's not the guy you're going to go to to get your gadgets and your wisdom from. He's just some kid who's... Yeah, but they're trying to relate to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, right? It's no longer Bill Gates is that guy. It's Mark Zuckerberg. So that's why this guy's young. To me, that's quite obvious. They're slapping me in the face with their dicks in this, right? It's like, this is Mark Zuckerberg. This is Mark Zuckerberg. I don't so, know that Mark Zuckerberg's hitting you in the face with his dick exactly. But <laughs> I, I mean, you're right that they are, you know, maybe less specifically... That's the demographic now that, yeah. you know, we think of techs, tech, you know, tech and startups, it, it, it definitely younger, younger leaning. So that, you know, that in a, makes sense. But we got to think about, I think they're not thinking enough about how the character needs to work. Exactly. Like, in my opinion, then that's kind of where I was going with that, but I didn't, didn't probably say it properly, is that... No, you said that your dick was in your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I didn't like it. So <laughs> Rum is kicking in pretty quick. I need a refill. I need a refill. We might have to pause this. But yeah, I mean, like, they need to be on an equal playing field for them to play off each other. Daniel Craig's obviously a lot older than whoever's playing Q, this gentleman. So I just feel that level of respect and equality is not there. It's so like Q needs to be that kind of guy who really can stop Bond in his tracks. The guy you know, who Bond not only respects, and yeah, you get a, an element by the end of this movie that Bond semi-respects Q, but it's still even not there. But I think that's something that was needed in this franchise that was sorely lacking. I agree, yeah. And the banter suffers because of that disparity, I think. Yes. Yeah, you get the sense that the Q in the original, I don't want to get his name right, but I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, the Q in the original movies, there's this sense that like he's kind of gone through what Bond's gone through. Like he is an engineer, he's kind of a geek, but that respect that was established between Q and Bond, like granted Bond would just basically do whatever he wanted with Q's gadgets, but there still was that element of respect. And don't get me wrong, Ben Wishaw, like I think he plays Q very, very well, and it's an evolution of how the times have progressed, where 
the people who tend to be the most tech savvy seem to be younger and younger and younger. It's like playing Halo and all of a sudden you're getting destroyed by like 12 year olds. It's that evolution of, of how technology has really played out over the last few years. But I think that relationship between the character, like granted, I think they had an element of that with M. Uh, I think the M bond relationship in the Craig franchise has been fantastic. But Q, I think they missed out on an opportunity to develop that relationship, as you guys have hinted at. And I think it's also because they had just such tremendous shoes to fill. And I think he does a great job, but it is a, a lost opportunity. I agree with you, Andrew. And I, you know, yeah, I'm trying to put be a little bit more critical and putting myself in their shoes. If they just put another old guy there, even if he was a distinguished actor, then a lot of people might say they're just copying. So, yeah, and then like you're enough. you're going to be yeah. saying, oh, well, this guy can't compare to the other guy. So they, that's probably why in addition to the relevance of today's tech geniuses, they went younger. But because yeah. of that, I don't think it just doesn't work. And yeah. it, and it's just, you know, I just feel that they just don't have the chemistry as well. Yeah, no, they don't have little, the chemistry. No, they don't. Yeah, it's certainly a little younger. And I think they could have, like, a, a storyline could have been such that, like, he was a former double O that got wounded in the line of combat. And this is what he now has to do is make these gadgets. And every single gadget he makes, Bond goes out and he destroys. So, like, the only thing that, like, I don't know. There's a lost element, and I think they do what they can with it, but they basically back themselves into a corner from Casino Royale, and they are basically playing with what they have available to them now. Well, I'm just thankful that it wasn't you know, Morgan Freeman playing Morgan Freeman as Q. <laughs> That's the only thing I can be thankful for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Desmond Llewellyn is the classic yes. Q. Just, we should give it a shout-out there. All right, so moving on from Q, we get Bond arriving in Rome. Uh, at the funeral for the the dude in the white suit that he kicked out of that helicopter, he encounters the widow of the hitman, and basically we're led to believe here she's she's in danger. Uh, Bond shows up at her at her place, kills a couple of the a couple of the assassins, and he's getting the information out of her here. So Monica Bellucci plays the widow. She also has the distinction of being the oldest woman to play a Bond, a Bond girl or Bond woman, however you. Are you, you serious? Yeah. She's the oldest. Oh, she's still yeah, looks she's pretty good. Fifty-one, I believe. Here. Ooh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised at the age. I'm just surprised that there's been no other Bond movie uh, woman that's been older than her that he's seduced. Yeah. 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 No, she's uh, definitely the oldest. I mean, usually they go quite a bit younger than whoever's playing Bond. I mean, there's often many, many years between the two. In this case, there are, but in the other direction there. So, but she's looking pretty good. I actually would love to see more of Monica Bellucci, I think, fantastic actor. Yeah, and I'm surprised she was in lot. it for so little, actually. Yeah, it's it's too bad that she's in it for so little. I actually, but I appreciate that she, for such a small role, she brought a lot to it, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I was certainly impressed with the impact that she had in the short screen time. And I think the banter between her and Bond was was nice to see. And I don't believe she died. So that was also an, another nice little change of pace. Because when you take a look at previous Craig movies and most Bond movies, they end up dying somehow. But the fact that they are able to save her because she basically was divulging all the information under the premise that she was about to die. I think that was certainly nice that they're able to save Bond girls every now and then. That's a good point. I haven't thought Although about that. I'm, I'm going to counter that a little bit later, but I'll, I'll talk about that when we get to that point. Okay. So Bond goes to the super secret meeting of every single organized criminal uh, in <laughs> Europe. The Great Hall here. I've never seen a table that large myself. Bruce Wayne has one in a dining room he hasn't been to. Yeah, yeah. Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne has that table. That's where he eats lunch 
on a typical Wednesday. <laughs> yes. Or a grilled cheese sandwich cut into triangles. Right, can you pass the salt? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you pass the salt? Uh, actually, but I thought this was very well filmed, though. It it looks, actually, as much of the film, it looks great. The use of shadow and light here, I think, is very good when we get the entrance of, you know, who we'll, we will come to know as Blofeld. We don't see his face. We don't even hear him speak. He's just sort of speaking to his minion in his ear to, like, move the microphone closer. I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of ominous, like it's a setup for him, you know, it's like showing this is a man of very big importance, like he doesn't have to speak. I don't know how effective that was in trying to make him more menacing. You know, I'm just going back to the old Blofeld scenarios, like I'll I'll just reference Thunderball where you kind of see this guy kind of talking over a whole group of agents and then, you know, he has people die or he electrocutes people or he kills people. I don't know if I like that setup better versus this one. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Andrew? I think the way that it played out was very well done. I like the camera angles. I like just the, the shadowy aspect of Blofeld. This was one of the beginning feelings of worry when it came to the movie because it just felt too easy. Bond just showed up and showed the ring and they're like, okay, you can go in. And you're like, what? Like, really? You just show up with a ring of an octopus and all of a sudden, like, you get access to the greatest supervillain convention of all time? Stonecutters, man. Stonecutters. Stonecutters, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you just needed like the garage door opener on his car there with the stonecutters. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is maybe where I've been like a little bit warped with recent spy flicks where they have the ability to like change faces, but it just seemed I don't know, like if I was a super villain and I was gonna have a convention, I would have a little tighter security. But that's just me. Yeah, but they knew they knew he was coming. So I got the impression that they let him in on purpose. Or even if the security didn't know. That yeah. they didn't even care because they're so – that's what the director's trying to portray is that they're so powerful. Yeah. They don't even give a fuck if you have a rat somewhere in there. Me personally, like what I've loved about the Daniel Craig franchise for the better part of most of the movies is that it kind of strays away from how the previous Bonds were. And Harry, I think you hinted at it. Oh, no. Sorry, Jeff. You hinted at it when you were giving the synopsis earlier where all of a sudden Blake Blofeld gives this grand master plan to Bond. And I just felt like this was a little bit too much like previous Bonds where it would just seem very convenient that Bond could show up. I don't know. I liked how it was distancing itself from old Bonds, but it just seemed like this movie. And this is the beginning of, I think, a trend where everything seemed too easy and too convenient for Bond. Hmm. That's so good that point. was yeah. just how I felt. That's yeah. a good point. Uh, I do think talk- Batista... Was awesome. Well, his I was going to say, in sequence. yeah, let's I talk about spoiled. the introduction of Batista here. Uh, as What's his Hinks? name? Is Hinks. it Hinks? Hinks. Hinks. Okay. I like Handjob better, but we'll call him Hinks because that's the name <laughs> of the script. We know what yeah. you're dreaming about, but that's okay. Yeah, I am. Yeah, he's a beast. So Dave Bautista, who's a former pro wrestler, he played the character of Deacon Batista in the WWE. I remember when he was introduced, I think it was still WWF back when he was introduced, but I remember uh, when he first came on as, I can't remember the name of the group that he was in, but uh, as Deacon Batista, he didn't talk a whole lot, just as a beast, beat people up. But uh, I, I uh, what, what did you got, Harry, what did you think of this henchman? Is this the new odd job, the new Jaws? I think so. I like the physicality that he brings here. In the previous Bond movies, you haven't really gotten, like with the Daniel Craig ones at least, you haven't gotten a sense that you have an equal match for Bond. Bond's always like fighting these, you know, regular dudes who are just henchmen or, you know, the bad guys, you know, get so fucking pissed off or so incompetent that they actually take a swing with a axe and like cut their own feet off. So it's like, you know, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's been Daniel Craig's challenge so far. So yeah. I'm yeah. glad that they have, you know, a guy who can actually best Bond in terms of physicality. And I think they yeah. needed something like yeah. that because we haven't had that in the previous Bond films. And I've been missing that aspect of Bond that I'd have a great sequence, which we can get into later. Yeah. That has these guys going against each other. So I appreciated that this guy was there. So Andrew, metal fingernails, yeah. go. Odd job, yes. Jaws, no. And I think this is okay. something else to talk about the Daniel Craig franchise. Like I think Batista played the part very, very well. Like Batista is not a guy that you want talking very often, and I think he'll That's be true. admitting that himself. Like you take a look at how he performed with Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy, and I think he did a great job there because they played off the fact that they know he's not a great actor and that he's not going to be speaking these prolific, unbelievable speeches. He's just going to be Dave Batista from the WWE. But I think what they missed out on with the Daniel Craig franchise, and I think they need a character similar to Jaws. They need that continuity between the different Daniel Craig franchises of a guy that Bond just can't beat. Like, no matter how much he tries, he has to outwit him and escape because he just can't beat him hand-to-hand. And granted, the way that Jaws' story played out in the Roger Moore franchise... Uh, could have been it falls in love. Better. He does. But <laughs> I think they missed out on an opportunity with the Daniel Craig franchise. And it's part of the, the nitpicking that I have with how it's evolved in that they could have totally planned out this franchise in a multi-movie arc. And if they had a character that showed up from Casino Royale that Bond just can't beat, he shows up again. He just has that look on his face like, God damn it, not this guy again. And it continues throughout the franchise. I think Batista could have been that guy, but I think he was wasted. Like, I think it was, he played the role very well in this movie, but there was an opportunity to have an extended role. And this is just a feeling with this movie in general but I don't want to get too far into it because yeah. I know we're going to be discussing that later. Yeah, I say we just save that for discussion for later. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, let's but, move how about, how about you, Jeff? You tell us what you think. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm a little mixed. Uh, I thought the metal fingernail thing was a little goofy. It felt a little too much to me that they were trying to make the new odd job or the new Jaws with some weird gimmick, and it didn't really fit. It, it felt... A little silly for me. Other than that detail, I love the physicality of the guy. And as we get into scenes uh, with him later, I thought it works great. As Andrew said, you don't give a guy like this a, a big speaking role. You give him a role where he can occupy the space as a monstrous human being. And that's pretty much it. And I thought for the most part that worked. For some reason, as we get into the next scene here where He's actually chasing Bond. Uh, They have the high-speed car chase through Rome, which is kind of cool. He didn't feel like the right character to have a high-speed chase with Bond. He wasn't menacing at all. And I don't know if that's a fact of him himself or if it wasn't... I thought he was menacing, but I didn't feel like he was agile enough to be steering this high-speed car through the... (laughs) He's not agile enough to steer a car? Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, look at that guy's biceps. How does he steer? He's <laughs> got maybe, uh, you know, four or five degrees on that steering wheel before his triceps start hitting his chest. I don't see it. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, he just, should fit into right. the vehicle. I think it's more of a fault of the director filming those scenes. There's not a lot of tension there. It's just like, here's a car chase, and, and I want to get into that later, but I'll let you guys, you guys talk about it first. Well, the car chase to me... I love the concept of it. We got these really narrow streets uh, and these really fast cars. And usually, you know, we got a big long highway or, or, or streets that we're more accustomed to 
you know, living in North America, like these little tiny streets from Europe uh, isn't something we see all the time. So I thought it was kind of cool, but I don't think it quite hit right. Andrew, what did you think? I think like I liked at the time, I liked the comedic elements of it to it. And the conversation that Bond was having while the chase was going on, I thought that was also pretty well done. But it just seemed like another generic Bond chase. Like it, it just, I don't know how the they're going to be making them unique anymore when it comes to driving through the small, narrow streets of Europe. We've, we've seen this with the Craig franchise. This isn't yeah. something that's new. And having Batista chase him, I think it was just a way, as you guys mentioned, it was like lazy directing to try and set up some type of rivalry between the two of them. But it really was, I don't think there was much point to it. You know, when you're getting into the 20-something, 20-something of Bond movie, there's not a lot you can really inject that'll make it different when it comes to a chase. It's been there, done that already. And then you're also talking about other movies. Again, we're going back to the Bourne movies, or you're coming back to the Mission Impossible movies, or similar movies like that. There's only so much you know, freshness you can add to this recipe, right? It's very tough to do something new. Saying that, however, I did feel that this chase was just lacking in something. It was lacking in a bit of excitement, a bit of tension. I don't know about you guys. I, I also wanted to ask you guys about the humor. Like, this is now, in my opinion here, in the middle of an action scene, they're trying to inject some humor with him talking to Monty Penny and him kind of getting jealous of Monty Penny has a boyfriend over that late or something like that. What did you guys think of that? Did, is this something that you think that was missing in the, in the Craig franchise so far? Because I kind of think they were missing it before. I just don't know if this was the appropriate place to inject it. I like the money petty aspect of it. I think it was one of those where it, it kind of ties into what I was mentioning, where it's like we've seen this over and over and over again, and Bond has become so desensitized that in the middle of this high-speed chase, he's able to have a coherent conversation is more focused on the fact that Moneypenny's got some guy over it out of her. And I, I like that element of the humor, the interactions with the car in the alley. I think those were too much like previous Bonds, but I like that play of like he is that good of a spy where he can have a conversation where he's more focused about a guy that is playing on the girl that he has been manipulating for God knows how long. I like that element of it. I just didn't like the, it seemed a little cartoony with the guy in the alleyway. That, that's a very stereotypical Bond moment where it's like you get these other people in front of Bond and he has to try and get around them and they're too slow. I don't know. I think they seem to, they threw those things in there on purpose. Well, these are not necessarily Bond tropes, but these are car chase tropes yeah yeah as, as well so it's hard to separate i found the humor a little bit misplaced here i think that it did to me it felt that they were trying to inject some classic bond elements some of the classic bond humor into into this film and i don't think it quite fits because that's not really what we've been set up with mm -hmm. with the daniel craig part of the franchise mm -hmm. you know i didn't mind the conversation with with money penny i thought it was fine Perhaps if the car chase itself had a little more, I thought it was lacking in tension and creativity. That's what I thought. I mean, there have been some great Bond chases over the years, whether they're car chases or, or boat chases or helicopter or the foot chase in Casino Royale. I mean, this didn't have anything interesting to it. They were trying, but it just doesn't hit. I agree. I think it was just lacking in something. Tension, yeah. excitement. Can call it creativity how creative can you get when you're this deep into how many movies are doing yeah at this right. point yeah. so you know i appreciate that how hard it is to stretch out new ideas 
But yeah, there was something missing here. There was some oomph missing. Yeah, there's there's an intangible. It's just not there. Yeah. Anyway, so the chase concludes with Bond deliberately crashing the DB10 into the river as he uses the ejection seat and uh, and away he goes. So that I guess is all good. We cut to the meeting in Hong Kong with the gathering of all of the intelligence agencies of various countries and the vote on if they're going to share their technology or their their surveillance. So we get basically one holdout which was uh, I believe South Africa and on that's pretty much it. So it had to be a unanimous vote. So that's been uh, sort of postponed for the time being. How are you guys following the surveillance information storyline so far? Predictable. Yes, predictable? extremely yep. predictable. You yeah. know exactly where it's going to go. This guy's being set up as a douche. Oh, this guy hates the MI6 program. Automatically, he's, they're not going to be able to do it at the end or he'll be the villain. Anyone who's familiar with the actor, uh, what's his name? Pull it up really quick. I think he's fantastic. Like anyone who watches Sherlock, I think he's Andrew a good Scott, actor. Yeah, I think he's fantastic. Like how he plays Moriarty, he's he's brilliant in in Sherlock. And so when you see him on screen, instantly you're like, oh god, I already know he's a villain. Like I yeah. already know he's a bad guy. And that's kind of how I liked how they played out Ralph Fiennes in Skyfall, in that it gave the impression like he was a bad guy, but he ended up being on Bond's side. And I think it's it's too predictable of a character right like it's you know exactly how this is going to play out he's going to be exposed as being part of specter and it just it i think they wasted another character in andrew scott as c because he's just he's brilliant in anything that he's in but it was just one of those oh yeah okay i've seen this before so andrew you're telling me this is another cumberbatch's con moment (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think there are certainly elements of Star Trek Into Darkness that I think were wasted. But it's one of those where, like, maybe C was revealed to be Blofeld or something. It just seemed that whole character arc was way too predictable. So you feel this was maybe a miscast? It yeah. didn't help. I think he played it well, but I think because of the character and the actor's, sorry, the actor's reputation, it ruined the surprise the or the yeah. Yeah, revelation. I think you have to pay respect to your audience as well when you cast these things. It's hard to do sometimes because you have to still get the right casting. You can't put the audience first, but then logic has to be there. You know, if you want to save some surprises, then it's like, oh, fuck, you got you to gotta cast somebody correctly. Yeah, exactly. It's like when you cast Liam Neeson in a movie. If he's not <laughs> murder punching a wolf with broken glass, <laughs> it, it, it just falls flat. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There is actually a, there's an into darkness moment uh, later, I think, which we can, we can come to, but Bond and Moneypenny follow. So Moneypenny clues Bond in to the location of the Pale King, who is Mr. White, who we remember from Quantum of Solace, whom I actually didn't remember from Quantum of Solace because that movie was entirely forgettable, but off Bond goes to, uh, to Austria, just an isolated cabin on a lake, and we run into Mr. White, who's obviously in poor health, and you know Bond's trying to get the information out of him, and they come to the bargain, which is Bond's going to uh, track down and protect White's daughter, and in exchange, Bond gets the information and he gives him the gun so he can uh, give himself the quick exit as opposed to the slow one that uh, Spectre has been been giving him here. So. Did you? I didn't even remember Mr. White. Did you guys remember him? Yeah, he was Andrew? in. He was in. Okay, no, can I know first. he was in Quantum of Solace, but did no, you he was in Casino too. Him? He was in Casino. Yeah, in Casino. Yeah, he was at the very end sequence with Bond, where he actually says Bond, James Bond, and then the 
the music cues and then you know it's like it's the beginning of a Wallen franchise. But I'm going to side with Jeff. Like uh, Quantum of Solace, I think has been nearly permanently removed from my memory in terms of how awful of a movie that was. Granted, it was also a unique time in my life, but I just found like it's at first like, oh, that's a nice nod to how it's like this seems like an elaborate setup. Like they know what they're doing. But I think it also exposes how I think they've just been flying by the seat of their pants every movie. Like there hasn't been a plan for this franchise from day one. And they're like, oh, in order to make it, you know, tie to one of the older movies, let's just throw in Mr. White. I have to be a little bit more fair because they didn't know the rights would come back. So Quantum was supposed to be the Spectre. So they were going to be building this evil organization and it would this movie would be called Quantum or hypothetically something like that. But because they got the rights back to Spectre, it's called Spectre. Let's just be honest. It is. Yeah. But it, yeah. it just felt like they kind of diverted from that. I just would have liked to have seen a more cohesive plot across all of the different movies that culminated in a giant finale to the, the Craig franchise, which I, yeah, but that's, I think, part of later conversation. Andrew's right. We could probably come back to it later. I think that what we see in modern filmmaking now, at least with the big budget films, is... They do a lot of world building. We've got these expanded universes now and movies are planned very deliberately with the sequel and the expanded universe in mind. And often that hurts the individual movie itself, right? You're putting elements in there that don't necessarily work for that story. You know, if we go back to Casino Royale, I thought part of what worked great for Casino Royale is they focused on making one movie that was great. And there weren't a whole lot of threads that, uh, they needed yes to carry forward to the next. And film. we'll get into that later. But yeah, it's yeah. a good point. Make sure you bring it back up. I'm sure we will. But I just want yeah. to ask you guys one question. So he goes to this, because I've only I th- I've only seen it once since a couple weeks ago. So thanks for that, Jeff. So my memory is a little fuzzy. I thought I'd get you back, Anytime. but it's okay. Anytime. Yeah. Can someone Reason answer? Now. Yeah. Can someone <laughs> answer me? What was, I know Mr. White got poisoned. So he's dying. He was poisoned by Spectre, correct? Yeah. Yeah. What, so what was he doing in that basement or that secret bunker room? Like he was just doing surveillance or monitoring and stuff like that. Like what, when Bond found him, like what's, what's his function at that point? Like, what is he doing? I got the impression that he was already like doing that. Like he was sort of plugged into the surveillance feeds that that Spectre had set up. So he was watching as he always did, but there didn't seem to be much of a point past that for me. He should have just made a sex tape of Blofeld at that point. Yeah, he should have. <laughs> Release it on the internet. I mean, I know that's go. what I wanted to watch. Yeah, this is exactly how I envision this podcast going. It's just culminating in Harry finding some way to have a guy make a sex tape about Blofeld because Blofeld and his tape showed up online. I'm like, oh my god, now everyone's going to know. I actually. Do you want to bring down Spectre? That's how you do it. I think you'd be flattered. Like that's just it's one of those like, yeah, it's like I actually got laid and it's on like the internet. <laughs> Maybe that's just given my current situation. That's how I would perceive a sex tape. But I, I, I just like how tapes. this is evolved. <laughs> Wolfelt sex tape is the name of my next metal band. Uh, all right. <laughs> Anyways, we get a scene in the new National Security Center. C is commiserating with M, you know, over the loss of the vote with South Africa. And this is kind of where we get it's not paid really enough depth here where they're talking about surveillance in the modern world and this is how things are now. And and this is, I hate it when they have to talk, when main characters need to talk about what the main themes of the movie are and why they're important. 
they're talking about boots on the ground versus the drones in the sky. And there isn't anything meaningful brought to this. This is an important argument in, in the world today, and they don't bring anything meaningful to that at all. It's a drop scene. 100%. Yeah. They had an opportunity to make it a little bit more relevant, but then do you make it a little bit more on the nose or you have that risk? Maybe. But this is more like, I just kind of, as you were talking about it, just kind of hit me. It's kind of like that satirical joke in The Simpsons where they have, you know, storyline A and storyline B and they make fun of, well, you know, storyline B is the weaker one. Yeah. You know, this is definitely the weaker storyline B, probably something they have to give Ralph uh, Fiennes or how you pronounce his name? Rafe. It's Rafe. Rafe, Rafe uh, Fiennes. You know, he has to give something to do, so... Yeah. Just, yeah, that's true. Just... We, they cast too important an actor in a side role, so they got to give him shit to do. And I like Ray Fiennes, and he yeah. does... He acquits himself well as M. He does. But this storyline totally falls flat for me. Yeah, 100% for me, too. It's dull as shit. It's the predictability of it. It's like, okay, yeah, just keep going. Uh-huh, yeah, I know what's going to yeah. happen. It's going to pass. Something's going to happen... All of a sudden, they realize that like the end of the world is coming upon them, and Bond's going to save them. Okay, yeah, let's get back to Bond. It just yeah, it exactly. was so robotic. Yeah. yeah, let's get back to Bond is what I kept thinking. Even though they're you know actors of great talent, and they they do their best here. But it, so we get back to Bond. We see this uh, clinic on top of a mountain, and this is very classic Bond, if I recall, very reminiscent of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a cool setting. Bond meets the next Bond girl, Madeline, who is Mr. White's daughter. And I was a little bit put off by, you know, he's sort of putting up the pretense here, but not not really. I like that conversation between them. Yeah, did you? Okay, well, tell us about that. I liked how she was, correct me if I'm wrong, that's some kind of therapeutic center. So she's asking him some questions, and I liked how she was kind of digging into him, because I think she's smarter than what she was she's giving credit for because her father trained her well. She's the daughter of Mr. White, so she's still on guard and she's, you know, chosen a profession and maybe even modeled some of these questions so she can kind of pry into to see if this guy's a danger or not. And I liked how she was kind of probing Bond a little bit. It doesn't help that she's, you know, damn fine and sexy as well. Yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's, but very, very lovely it lady felt, for sure. She is, but it just felt rushed. Like, of a movie that, of most of the Bond films, I found this one to be a little long, actually. It was one of the few that I've actually, like, was looking at my watch. Like It is the longest Bond movie ever, in fact. Ever? Oh, oh wow. Yeah. This wow. is the longest James Bond movie. Felt like it. But this was one yeah, of the scenes that I felt could have been stretched out longer to establish more of a relationship of Bond working his way into this little therapeutic group. Like imagine having like a scene where Bond is with a group of other people and he's in therapy and he's just like looking around (laughs) like, God, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, we could have had more of this and less of the intelligence bullshit. But I did like one little aspect, and I think they could have played out this scene or this humor a little bit more. Correct me if I'm wrong, they did not serve alcohol here. Because it's a That's therapeutic correct. center. So when yeah. he's at the bar ordering something, they didn't really play off that joke a little bit. I, I, I wish they did. They kind of did because he, he orders the vodka martini shaken, not stirred. And they're like, we don't order alcohol. If you go back across the Daniel Craig movies, if I'm right, he never really gets that drink. No, he doesn't. Because in Casino Royale, he orders a vodka martini and they ask him shaken or stirred. And he's like, do I look like a bloody give a damn? And then I think they kind of carry that thread through here. He never really gets the drink. So I thought it was a, a good little laugh. You know, he still hasn't gotten the, that drink. It's like Luke Skywalker not getting his lightsaber. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, 
Oh, we're not getting the Force. It's like, okay. Where is it? We're going to get it. Is Harry foreshadowing the Force Awakens? We will see in three weeks. But this was also the moment where it was the first tie, and I think there are a lot of connections, and this will, I think, unravel as we talk more and more about the plot, the tie to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Like, it... This was the beginning in my head. I'm like, oh, this is like a quasi-remake of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And that was a common theme I found as the movie played out with, as I'm... That he couldn't get his drink? Not going to say. No, the, well, <laughs> the sequence... Uh, no, he got drinking a lot more on Honor Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> it's been uh, so long. you remember that, that, that sequence. But the theme of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and just the visual look of this place in the top of the Alps or wherever they were, that was, I think as I mentioned, like the first connection with Honor Majesty's Secret Service that really stuck with me. And I kept comparing it to that movie for the duration of this one. I can see some of the similarities there for sure. Yeah, I think they're deliberately calling back to it. I think Mm. that's clear. So Q shows up, tells Bonnie he's got to go back to London, blah, blah, blah. He hands Q the Spectre ring for analysis. Q takes off and Bond can spy that Hinks's goons are uh, pinching Madeline. So he chases them down. So they're uh, in Jeeps and Bond gets into an airplane to chase them down. Where did he get this thing? Yeah, I I don't really... There was obviously an airplane because there was an airstrip on the top of the mountain. And we did see that, that there was an airstrip. But I don't know. I mean, if they're absent any other vehicle on top of the mountain, I guess, okay, you jump into the plane, but it seemed a little extreme for the daniel craig bond if it was pierce brosnan i'd probably buy it but yeah it seemed a little unbelievable it was beautifully shot i have to give credit for where credit is the cinematography was just absolutely gorgeous just like it was in skyfall a masterfully shot but yeah again you're running into the same issues that skyfall had it's like all these coincidences to end these action sequences I had a hard time believing that he would be able to not only survive him ramming his airplane or inter- getting interfere- interfering with these cars using an airplane because he has no guns. He has nothing. He just has the yeah. airplane. So he's able to stop these Jeeps or like have these Jeeps kind of ram into the plane. I think it's again, it's been a couple of weeks. I don't remember every single beat of the action sequence. But yeah, I found myself saying eh, it really didn't work. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? They're reverting too much to previous Bonds. And it was cool. It was very well shot. But you're like, oh, that just like all came together perfectly. And it's another one of those examples of, I think, a wasted opportunity with this movie. Because my favorite sequences, and I think they're all done really, really well throughout the Bond franchise, are all of the skiing sequences. Yes. I was going to say, I was missing a skiing sequence. But maybe instead of a downhill skiing, which would be exciting and thrilling, make it refreshing. Let's do a cross-country ski chase. (laughs) Well, and this is where it's like Honor Majesty's Secret Service. They made it unique and it was like a bobsled run. But yeah. this was another one of those examples of but, like. What, okay, wasn't that for your eyes only? Uh, or was that they also may have done that, that one too? That was Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That's how we caught Blofeld, for, uh, if I remember oh, correctly. Okay. But it was just another one of those where it's like, oh, feels like the later Brosnan movies. And that's where yeah. I started getting more of a sour taste in my mouth. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. They can't be doing this because Goldeneye started off spectacularly well. Yeah, it's funny they mentioned that too, Andrew. Is like my cousin saw this before me, and I asked him, "What'd you think?" Just high level dummy, and he said, "Yeah, uh, okay." And he said he kind of felt more like a Brosnan movie than a Craig movie. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. So we're kind of cutting between scenes as well. Q is getting on the cable car to get down off the mountain. We see that he's getting followed by some unidentified goons. 
and Q puts the Spectre ring on the magic diviner pad uh, connected to his laptop, which shows him all of the images from the villains of the previous movies. I hate magic technology. Yeah, it made no sense, but... Yeah. I mean, yeah, it didn't make or break the movie, but it's stupid. It didn't make or break it, but I think it's another symptom of the problem of this film, which is, you know, we're not getting into the right details at the right time and the right amount of detail. And not only that, he didn't need to be there for that, really. No, he didn't. No. no. He didn't. So it's like giving the actor something to do and his little chase, which was pretty shitty, ended even more shittier. Oh, I, I just hid in the closet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hid in the closet. They they didn't need this at all. They could have stayed on the Bond plane versus Jeep down the mountain chase. I would have rather it had been more refreshing if he pulled a Homer Simpson and said, I just want to, you know, how are you going to pass this exam? I'm just going to hide underneath a bunch of coats, close my eyes, and hopefully everything will turn out okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt it was another coincidence. Like, it's just one, like, not a coincidence. It was convenient because, like, all the fingerprints popped up. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's tying to Spectre. But, like, you mean he didn't clean his ring once? And this yeah. secret diabolical organization doesn't plan for like articles being taken by the police and scanned for fingerprints that would tie all of them together. Like maybe if they had one of the two characters from the movie with the fingerprints, but to have um, Le Chief on it as well, I was like, that was so long ago. Why would his fingerprints? Yeah, be- 100% agree. Just it- stupid. Give me some more detective work as opposed to the magic technology USB port put the ring on top of this thing like that is such a load of bullshit it insults my intelligence i think as an audience member and i really dislike that kind of thing and there's some more of this later which we can get into but uh anyway so bond manages somehow to run down these cars off the road with a fucking airplane saves the girl they all reconvene at q's hotel and he you know he lays out for bond they're all connected and madeline gives us the name of the mysterious organization they're called Spectre, which is great. So they're trying to piece together clues. Bond is trying to find the place called L'Americaine. She identifies that as this hotel that her parents spent their anniversaries at every single year, even after they got divorced. I found that this was a little bit fast to get to certain conclusions. So Andrew, what did you what did you think? Are you following the clues at this point? This is where the movie started to lose me. Like, this was one of the reasons why, as soon as I got home after watching this movie, I'm like, I have to read the synopsis on Wikipedia because it's just that it seemed, did I actually just watch that? Like, it just, it, uh, it was the beginning of the dumbing of the movie. And I just, it lost me and it turned into a generic spy flick. So, Andrew, is this about more about like just her revealing the information or the time they spent there in that hotel? It was all of it. Like, I like her character. I, th- I think her character played out really well, but it's just this secret. Now, all of a sudden, they discover this secret lair of where Mr. White spent all of his time. It was just, it was very convenient once again. It was convenient. I don't think that that was a problem. I liked them in the hotel room was actually one of the more stronger character yeah. scenes between the two. You know, them developing a relationship. You know, she obviously has issues with her father, who, who was a criminal and her being neglected and now orphaned. So, and then her dealing with bond. So I liked those scenes. Uh, bond finding the room itself is a little bit ho-hum, but I liked her reaction when she saw all the pictures of her in the room. That was touching. That was well done. Uh, yeah. So if we're talking about the, uh, the, ho- the honeymoon suite and the, the Lamarcane hotel in Tangier. Yeah. This was 
probably the strongest character interaction between Madeline and Bond. I thought it was great that she she wasn't picking up what he was putting down. You know, he's all about the ladies and she's not digging it, even though she's just fucking blasted drunk at this point. So I thought that was pretty fun. Yeah, I thought this was, there were some good scenes here. Uh, it was a little weird to me that there's sort of the secret compartment in a hotel room that he... Yeah, I'm uh, not sure how that finds, works, but, but that's okay. Yeah, I don't know either, but one of the things that the Bond movies do and have always done is when they take us to exotic places, it's easier to believe that is something like this is possible because it's outside of what we would regularly know. I've never been to Tangier. I don't know if you could have a secret compartment behind a wall in a hotel room. Maybe you can. I was enjoying these scenes, them getting drunk. And then when he discovers the secret room and the coordinates for the super secret base are there. Yeah. yeah it's a little too coincidental. They were trying to tie back. Cause there's, so Bond picks up a tape. I mean, when did Casino Royale come out? 2006. Six? Okay. Yeah. How many VHS tapes? Well, sorry, what, what was on there? Just refresh my memory because now yeah, I can't on, remember. What's on the, on the tape? tape? It, on the tape, it says Vesper Lind. Interview. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, you don't have that on VHS. No, you don't I mean, why not put it on Betamax if you're just going to go that far? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, why not an eight? I mean, you could have had a couple of like film reel, like old, like eight millimeter reels if you're going to put it on VHS. Silent films. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a little, it was, it's a little. Uh, silly obviously we see that you know we need a visual cue as to the connection there with vesper but i don't know that with the coordinates like why are the coordinates there for this old for the super secret super villain base doesn't add up to me like that wouldn't be written down you know he'd no. have it in his mind he'd have it it would be encrypted on some unless he knew he would anticipate mr white would anticipate that eventually because he had a daughter he needed some ammunition to keep her safe that's a stretch exactly it is a stretch but it does allow us to have some really super cool train sequences so bond and madeline off the train of course bond makes sure to bring his tux and madeline her evening wear they're having a very nice dinner i want to know where she went to get her hair done yeah they probably have somebody on the train (laughs) yeah yeah me too i want to know where i can get my hair done (laughs) there's yeah i want to know where i can get my hair done too yeah there's a there's straight up a salon on that train guaranteed guaranteed okay yeah Yeah, i will grow out my mullet and then that's where i'll get my hair done (laughs) (laughs) you get it like curled like yarmor yager style down your back that was a Um, conversation in the hockey locker room today but i will save that conversation for a non-podcast i have discovered like little (laughs) dr seuss lindy lou hairs in my head where it's like one is growing really long and the rest so you're, you're like jason voorhees right (laughs) <laughs> or the toxic, or the toxic Avenger. You just got that one hair that's just yeah, on there. Yeah, he's the toxic Avenger. Yeah. <laughs> so they indulge into a dirty vodka martini. I got my issues with the vodka martini, but we'll move on. So as they're just sipping, who shows up? But uh, Mr. Metal Thumb, and we get into a very lengthy uh, action sequence here. The fight scene, which takes us through several train cars. This is a knockdown throwout brawl here. Andrew, give me your impression of this fight. I liked the fight until afterwards when I realized, like, where was everyone? Like, the fight was very well choreographed. Like, it was great because it was uh, the brute strength of Batista versus Bond just trying to throw every possible concoction at him. But then I looked at it, and, like, it was a completely empty, like, every single car was completely empty and devoid of human beings. 
And that's how, like, after the, the fight played out, when they just get dropped off, you're like, really? They just destroyed half of the train? The train continued on its merry way with, like, half the train destroyed? It was very well done. I liked the fight. It was, uh, I think, a great way to end the relationship between the two characters. But there still was an element of realism that was missing. Yeah, I, I love the fight. Probably one of the highlights of the movie for me. Batista played it well. Again, as mentioned before, you're getting a credible threat to Bond in terms of physicality. And, and you know, obviously he has much more brute strength than Bond. And I like that. Bond, you know, again, just going back on my memory, I think had to use a couple of... I mean, he was still fighting, you know, fist to fist, but I think he had to use a couple of cutting maneuvers to kind of get out of kind of certain situations. And I just love the power that Batista had. This is something we hadn't seen in the Craig Bond movies yet, so yep. it was finally refreshing a refreshing take. Again, as Andrew had mentioned, going back to the classic villains of Odd Job and Jaws and some of the other tough guys. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the setting. I thought it was well filmed. I liked how Madeline got involved. She shot him in the arm or in the shoulder or something like that. And, you know, she wasn't just, you know, sitting there as a damsel in distress. Like she was holding her own where she can and, you know, contributing. So I thought it was good. The only thing is the ending again bond being clever to end it i liked it i just don't know if i i was anticipating a get off my plane moment and he just get choked <laughs> it's a get off my train so that's the first thing that thinking of in the movies when that was about to happen because as soon as he'd linked it i thought okay he's gonna get pulled back and break his neck like yeah. gary oldman right and so I, I like the fact that you don't know his fate so give opens the door to mm. maybe he can come back but i would imagine he's dead what do you guys think I think that they were trying to open the door to him being able to come back in sort of the odd job Jaws fashion. Uh, you know, for sure this dude's dead, but he's a beast. So, yeah, he could come back. I just found, like, when you talk about, like, whether or not the character survived or not, at that point in the movie, you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. I think he could come back. And then after you watch the end of the movie, you're like, oh, no. Like, it, it's just, yeah. Oh. The beginning of, like, wasted opportunities, too. Well, we could talk about it later. I'm not going to miss Hinks if he never comes back. If he comes back, yeah. I'd be fine. But if he doesn't, I'm not going to miss him. So Bond and Madeline hook up because that's what you do after you have a fight to the death, at least in a Bond movie. And then the train drops them off at some random station in the middle of the desert. They're all alone. And maybe I missed something, but a car just sort of shows up. Yep. A Rolls-Royce phantom shows up which is great but why did this car show up did i miss something i presume that they know who they're picking up here so why would they bring the super hero super spy into the heart of the super secret super villain base classic trope and you know he knew he was coming so he went to go get him and they don't really explain yeah so i'd have to make the assumption yeah, but that's my kind of my problem is like, I have to assume why. So he's not telling knew, me. They knew the coordinates to get off there. Yeah, they So did. they got off yeah. there, and yeah, that's it. I'm and assuming he just knew. there and hoped for the best, right? So a shitty plan, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Just another coincidence. It was just convenient. It was cool at the time. We're like, but this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. So they arrive at the observatory at, at the site of the super secret base, you know, they go fix themselves up. We see a couple of telling photographs in each room. here. So in Vaughn's room, we see, if I recall correctly, we see the photograph of the man standing with the two boys that we saw in the, in the box that Bond had from Skyfall here, only it's preserved. 
So obviously there's a connection from whoever has got this thing set up and Bond. So are we, what's happening at this point? Do you see what's happening at this point, Harry? Can you tell who this person is? Oh, of forgetting course. About the market, forgetting about the marketing, though. I knew when he went to that big meeting in Rome. So Oberhausen kind of says, James, you know, as something along the lines, you know, we know you're here, James, welcome, and all that stuff. So, and then with the drops, the hint drops before with the picture and now the picture again, obviously they're related. So yeah. you're, you're getting, you already know that. Obviously from the marketing, you know it, which is stupid. But yeah. so that's just reinforced here. And I guess that gives, you know, another piece of the puzzle that he knew he was coming. They were coming because he set up those pictures there. So he knew they were coming. And then he's all about information, tapping into everything. So you would expect, based on what his plan is, just to spy on everything, get his hands into everything, that he would knew they would be coming. So it's not a surprise to him. Right. All right. So as they, as they get ready for dinner, they're led to the observatory. And they meet Franz Oberhauser in the room with the meteorite. I don't know. Sorry, what the, what what is with this meteorite? Like, I don't understand. Like, is this like from Krypton? Like, what what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, it's from Krypton. <laughs> They're tying it into the new Batman versus Superman movie. Like, yeah, really, exactly. this is what Batman's going to use in order to fight Superman. It's all tied together, Harry. This uh, is how we're going to beat Marvel. Exactly, yes, yeah, the way to beat Marvel. A new expanded universe. Uh, I don't know. Did someone explain to me? Sorry, he said something about the meteor. Again, I can't remember. He did say something about it, but I can't remember because it's been a, a while was, back. But it, What he said about the meteor was, you know, bullshit, bullshit made this big hole, it was up in the sky, and now it's out of, I don't know, something, something. It, that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, I'm going to shit on your fucking house. That's pretty much Exactly, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just yeah. like throw a pile of dog shit at him, it's the same thing. Exactly, it's exactly the same thing. Pile of bullshit, something, something. Oh, and here's the operations center. So they go to the operations center, and this is where they can see the extent of the surveillance. So there's a couple of hundred screens, a bunch of people watching that, so they get the extent of where the tentacles of Spectre reach okay so this part didn't make a whole lot of sense to me so i was under the impression that bond was pretty clear with madeline what happened with her father when he went to meet her yeah he went well, there i don't understand this the deal. yeah she already deal, knew he's dead and she knew that he killed himself because he told her exactly so they got the video up there and it's like don't look at don't look at that look at me and like well she, obviously she doesn't want to see him put the gun to his head but she knew like what was he trying to do to split them apart she knew that this is what had transpired, right? I didn't think that there was anything new here at all. Maybe that's the fault of the villain. You know, he thought he was trying to drive a wedge between them and he, and he failed. But it was Bond's reaction to it as well. Like, yeah, exactly. That's right. It's like exactly. he was trying to stop her from seeing, but he had already told her. Exactly. 100% agree, yeah. Andrew. This did not make any sense whatsoever. Unless he's just saying, I don't want you seeing the visual. Yeah, and uh, I think that's you know what I mean. If he had said something to her dad, to Mr. White, that contradicted everything he had been telling her and exposed a lie that would undermine the trust that they've developed between the two of them, that's where I could see him freaking out, like, don't listen to this. Don't watch this. You cannot watch this. But it's just like, she knows he's going to kill himself. Like, okay, yeah, you see your dad kill himself. Not the greatest thing in the world, but it's not, like, huge to the plot itself at this point in time. Exactly. Also, she hated him, too. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it didn't make a lot of sense. It's like Obi Wan, you know, viewing Anakin as the in that hologram. Oh, he's Darth Vader. Oh, I can't watch it anymore. <laughs> okay, okay, that, that's what I got from thirty years of waiting. This made a lot of sense. Yeah, you're gonna have to save that. We're gonna get into that one. I cannot later. wait for that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but this didn't make any sense whatsoever. Just look like they're the director, the writers are trying to amp up the tension or make it dramatic for the sake of being dramatic without making sense to the story. Because you're right, she already knew he killed himself. The only thing I'm trying to think is that he didn't want her to see the image. As you said, they didn't portray it that way. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. they did not. So Bond gets knocked out and he awakens in the torture chair. So we, how many times has Daniel Craig's Bond been tortured? Casino Royale, yeah, his ball slapped around a bit. Oh, that was the best torture sequence. He had his ball slapped around a lot. I don't think anything happened in the other two. Oh, no. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. But it's not unusual for us to have Bond strapped to a chair, having a body part or two slapped around, right? Like, this is the obligatory torture scene. (laughs) Do you expect me to fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I definitely got a feel of that. I can't remember the exact line, but it called back to... I love the common themes behind Harry's comments. There's a lot of, like different types of porn that Harry is moving in a direction that perhaps Jeff and I may be uncomfortable talking about in this podcast, but that's fine. Harry, we appreciate you and you are unique. As hey man, all I want to know is that I pull off a good Connery or not. Yeah, it's an okay Connery. Don't be ashamed, man. That's all I have to say. Yeah, you be you. Embrace your inner self, Harry. Yeah, Just uh, yeah. let it come out. I, ha- you. I, I have, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so we're at the torture scene. I felt this a little bit drawn out. We know Bond's got the bomb in the watch. There's some weird shit about how this tiny little drill is going to erase his memory of Madeline. I'm not sure how this is supposed to do so, but all right, no problem. I expected the Homer Simpson, you know, when he's trying to like get the crayon back in his brain. It's like, defense, defense. (laughs) As the drills start to go through extended warranty, how can I lose? That's what I was picturing when I first saw this. Actually, like, <laughs> chuckling on the inside as the screw's going deeper. It's like, defense! <laughs> defense! <laughs> I think this is the, the point in the movie, because he was explaining the whole, the background in regards to how, like, he's viewed Bond as a threat to the relationship with his dad. So he yeah. was able to have his dad killed. And then it, it basically was it explaining the whole story about how they were stepbrothers or however the relationship was. And soon as that was revealed, which we kind of got a hint at at all the trailers and you didn't want to believe it, what instantly popped into my head basically ruined the movie from there on out because all I could think about was Austin Powers, was the relationship between Austin Powers and Dr. Evil. And I'm like, yeah. sweet mother of God, yeah. James Bond and Blofeld related to each other in some way. Oh, like it was, in one way, the reveal was disappointing they hadn't built it up that was a huge element of this movie that they left unexplained that perhaps could have been hinted at through like the various iterations of the craig franchise but to have this revelation and no real emotional connection with it that's where i'm like i'm just gonna look at you as dr evil now i'm not supposed to be thinking of austin powers but i have been thinking about austin powers ever since this moment yeah, a yeah. couple of things I wanted to say here also, Andrew. I mean, I completely agree. Not only did the thing, whole scene fall flat. I mean, I could see Daniel Craig's Bond playing it this way, but I kind of felt that he seems pretty distant from his past, as as you mentioned, from Bond movies before and what was presented in Skyfall. He never really cared about his past. But I kind of felt it strange that he really didn't kind of confront him or say anything. He was just kind of just, I'm just here. You know, you're the bad guy, I'm the good guy. Oh yeah, we're related, okay. Doesn't really mean anything to me. So kind of just all felt really unimportant. And then the second problem I have here is that 
as you're talking about Austin Powers, I mean, I really didn't even make that connection. The first thing that struck me is that the minute you go down this route, and we can get into this now if you want, and you're making them related, the universe just becomes all that much more smaller. And then we can get into what will be revealed later, how he's kind of has his hand in everything of his past. So his whole goal as Spectre is just to what? Fuck around with James Bond? Seems pretty petty and stupid and mundane for a supervillain. And this is where I just felt there was not enough build up to this moment. Like there was not enough hints in previous Craig movies that led us to this point where he had actually had a hand in everything. And it just, it, this is where I, I also feel this movie could have been split up into at least two movies in order to properly build up the story for that type of reveal. You don't even need to go back and have him tie into any of his past. Like, I'm the author of all your pain. I really don't need that from this guy. The whole thing is, it just makes the universe small. It makes those other villains and other movies so much more unimportant. It makes those movies so small. It hurts those movies. I totally agree. I think there's a few things that I got a problem with here. The first being, this is the Star Trek Into Darkness moment, where he reveals himself to be Ernst Stavro Blofeld's. And that only means something if you and I have seen the Bond movies way back. Yeah. Why did he hide the fact that this was his name that he took? Who gives a shit? He should have been Blofeld you know? from the beginning. Yeah, it was the same with Into Darkness. Why wasn't he just Khan? Like, why was he this fake name? The exactly. only reason it was a fake name is because they were trying to fool the audience. But the character doesn't know that there's an audience there, so they wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't he be the name of the guy that he fucking considers himself to be? Like... I don't walk around hanging out with you doing this podcast, calling myself Jack Wazinski, you know, and then like reveal to you later. No, that's not my name. My name is Jeff. Like it doesn't, it doesn't fucking make any sense. The guy would just be Blofeld. You could have done a Joker thing there. Jack is dead, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You can call me Jeff. Um, So it's, it's so stupid that they did that. They just do that to fucking play on my preconceived shit and i hate that yeah don't i hate it when they insult me like that because that's what they're doing there the fact that they're connected i don't like that i i agree with you harriet it makes everything so small why can't he just be a fucking bad guy you know he's got to be bond's sort of brother from way back but they never really had a connection because if they'd actually had a connection when they were kids then maybe something else can work here but bond doesn't care he's like yeah whatever his father took me in yeah. This guy's just a fucking weirdo, and he killed his old man. Well, it's not, it's it's not a, even just no that. Connection. And not even this that. The way they portray this movie, and I'm sure in the grand scheme of things, a psychotic would have more going on in the back of his mind, the super villain. But it just made this movie portrays Blofeld to just have jealousy and daddy issues. Yeah. It's lame. It's been done a billion times, a billion times better, and it's just played. It's just done. It's not interesting. Yeah, I think this is where they had an opportunity too. where I don't want to get into into darkness because that's going to make this podcast like twice as long. But (laughs) where if they had made C, Andrew Scott Blofeld. That would be interesting. Completely out of left field. Like they had to have known that all the rumors are going to be that Christoph Waltz was going to be Blofeld. Like we're talking about the Bond villain, like the yeah. one in all of the original books that has a common theme that Bond could never beat. The way he beat them in the Roger Moore franchise was just awful. It didn't have that oomph. It didn't have that surprise. It didn't have like what was intended behind Khan. And I hope to God Force Awakens doesn't 
pull something like this in a few weeks, but it, it didn't have that emotional impact that they were hoping to achieve with this particular reveal because everyone knew that Spectre was back. So Blofeld's got to be back. Yeah. But you do it in a different way that no one expects. And I agree with you, Andrew. I think a more interesting approach, whether this is the last of the, the Craig films or not, because there's a couple things here. There was last minute third act script rewrites. I'm not sure if you guys heard all the rumors that they actually dumped the third act completely because it wasn't working. While at the beginning of the shoot, they were still struggling to get this third act to work. And they were doing massive rewrites. They were calling in new writers. I'm not sure if you've heard all those rumors, but that's what seems to be going on. It seems pretty evident that they're just yeah. scrambled to get this to put it all together. And, and and I think, you know, part of the problem is, is when you cast a guy like Christoph Waltz, you have to give him something relevant to do. I think it would have been better if you just casted an unknown. You don't know. You cast Christoph Waltz or someone distinguished actor, you're expecting him, he's got to be some something of some importance. So it's pretty clear what's going to happen in addition to giving away all the spoilers during the trailers. But mm. if you put someone who's unknown, you don't know who the fuck this guy's going to be, then maybe you introduce Blofeld at the end of the movie. Or you have this guy just come in. And that could be Christoph Waltz or somebody else. Or Christoph Waltz isn't Blofeld and then the real Blofeld comes in later. Yeah. Who's played by fucking Liam Neeson. Well, <laughs> I was just about to say that the way that Batman Begins played out the character. And see, uh, that's the way to do it. That was done so much yeah. better. I was shocked I think, when that revelation happened. I don't know about you guys. Oh, uh, me too. Because it's like when you read the comics, when you've watched the series, like you have an idea like what Rachel Ghoul is supposed to look like. You're like, oh, they killed him off right away. But like, you know, it's probably setting up to a bigger character arc. And you find out Liam Neeson is Rachel Ghoul. You're like, oh my god! Like that. Like I didn't see that coming from any perspective. Just yeah, because it was Liam right Neeson. in front of you the whole time. Yeah, it was exactly. right in front of you. But like, you got the movie was so good that I wasn't thinking about it, and they didn't fucking blow it with the marketing as well. Here, they right. blow everything right off the bat. So the torture scene ends with Bond blowing up some shit. They escape. Bond shoots some gas line or something, and for some reason, that means the whole place explodes. Did he shoot a gas line? Because I was wondering how the fuck this whole facility just blew up. He shot a gas line, and it looked like he shot a gas line like as a distraction to try to get them out of there. And that was the only thing that caused any explosion, and then everything blew up. So a piece of trivia, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, because I just read this the other day, that that explosion was the largest explosion, or at least using the most tons of explosive used on film ever, the destruction of that wow. facility. Wow. It looked really? impressive. It looked It looked cool. great. Yeah, yeah, it looked, it looked great. great. That was yeah. the most tonnage of explosive ever used for Hollywood. It was a nice explosion. It's just, yeah, I'm just sitting there saying, how the fuck did this happen? He did shoot a, a something, and the something exploded. And I, I guess in classic supervillain layer construction, they this, had the Death Star engineers basically working on this place. This so is how special happen. ops plans all their missions. Just shoot something, yeah. it'll blow up. Shoot yeah. something, it'll blow up. And because the bad guys construct their secret super secret layers uh <laughs> with the one weakness to blow up the whole thing yeah like, like i said <laughs> with the, the, target, the target area is only two meters wide yeah well hey you know hey uh, even bond has been bullseyeing womp rats back home and they're not much bigger than two meters so don't worry he's got it covered yeah but it was it was pretty stupid yeah, it's pretty stupid, but cool explosion. Looked great. What did um, you think of the escape sequence? Rushed. It ended very quickly. Explosion was great. It's nice to see practical effects, but it was still kind of like, okay, that ended quickly. Yeah, it wasn't very exciting. My it wasn't very adventures. exciting. You know what? Actually, I didn't mind it because he capably shot the bad guys down. I was okay with it. For some reason, I was okay with it, but 
again, we, we're not done yet. So we head back to London and there's a safe house. M arrives at the safe house and there's Bond just chilling. Now, here's the plan. So they are working on bringing down the rest of the surveillance operation. For some reason, there's some countdown to when this whole thing goes live. I hate these convenient countdowns. I mean, it's one thing when it's a bomb, it kind of makes sense. Terminator Genesis? You know, it's just pretty yeah, much Yeah, exactly. It's exactly, exactly. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I understand the audience needs something, but again, I feel insulted. I feel like my intelligence is being insulted. Yeah. Why don't you just throw on that track? I don't know who the band is, but it's like you just play the final countdown song. You know, yes. it's like the final <laughs> countdown. Actually, it's a good song, but it's, you know, just throw it there. If you're that lazy, that just put it there. Than, yeah. So the, the plan is laid out here. Q is going to hackety hack into this security system to somehow shut down this global surveillance thing whatever madeline decides that she's going to break up with bond at this exact moment like this exact moment she picks to say i'm not going to watch you die and off she goes and bond's fine with that so away they go that's when you know she's going to get kidnapped oh sorry exactly. i got i got to leave you this is like i got 3 months left till retirement so i'm going to die in the yeah. next scene yeah, so exactly. i'm breaking up with you now so i can go get kidnapped thank you that's right does she not understand what's happening here you're leaving the super duper spy like you gotta be next to this guy no no but forget that even if she doesn't want to be like let's pretend she hates him wants nothing to do with this life or him in a real situation she's dropping this bombshell before he's going on this super important mission to save the world why don't you save it till after let him focus yeah exactly let the guy focus exactly so she leaves we got the two cars driving they get waylaid bond gets captured m escapes so basically what happens here is M and Q and Money Penny end up at the new headquarters, the new Secret Service headquarters, and Bond is kidnapped and he's taken to the old MI6 building for the final confrontation. So we're kind of cut between the two sequences here. So Bond is going through the skeleton of the old MI6 building was blown up in Skyfall. So it's rubble. Uh, we see these wires sort of strung throughout the whole place and we get... M and Q at the national security place. Q is hacking in. I don't even know what hacking into anything means anymore. I, I hate it when people hack into shit in movies. It's Even though it, it happens in real life, but that's okay. Well, it's not that there aren't hackers in real life, but that's not what hacking looks like. They just, yeah, they start a program, they go for a cup of coffee. Essentially, yeah. yeah. That's why I hate it. It's happened for years and years now, and it's so fucking lame. But okay, whatever. It's the convention. Anyway, so Bond is, he makes his way down to the bowels of the old MI6 building, and there's there's Blofeld behind some bulletproof glass. Hold on, and... but don't you see all those? Is this before or after he sees all those convenient pictures that he lays out? Oh, here's That's a picture right. of Vesper. Here's a picture yeah. of uh, Mr. White. Here's a picture yeah. of the guy from Quantum, the oil guy. Here's a picture I... of Silva. Oh, yeah. I got your picture of M. I got you. I'm the author so of we have all, all your pains. Right. We have all the old the callbacks to the previous Daniel Craig movies, as we've seen a couple of times with the images uh, calling back to these old films here. So for me, I find this very contrived. Absolutely. 100% agree with you, Jeff. It just, it, I think having Harry just shed light on the fact that the, the third act required a lot of tinkering with, and they, they basically threw it together. It really exposes that. It threw off the whole, I think, tempo and feeling of the movie. And yes, it kind of been building up. It's like everything is just a coincidence. I think the audiences are smarter these days. And it just yeah. it felt unnecessary. Yeah, Hollywood doesn't give the audience enough credit. I mean, yeah, sure. Most of the audience is still isn't smart enough to 
realize good writing when they see it, but they, even they are smarter than this. 100% agree. Yeah. Lazy, yeah. contrived, boring, again, makes the world small. It's laughable and insulting. I mean, this is Blofeld. Blofeld's better than this. He's better than this. You know, you're like, you know, ass-raping this character on national TV. That's right. They're disrespecting the character, and they, and at the same time, they disrespect us. So you, because you're right. They think that we're not smart enough to make these connections ourselves. I really hate that. Especially when it's a movie that I want to like, and a franchise that I respect. You know, we're all fans of Bond. Otherwise, we're not doing the show at all. But they give us something like this. It hurts. I want something more out of it. So anyway, so as we as we move on, so Blofeld, now he has the scar, classic scar in his face. He's got, He's the, got scar. the scar and the eye. And that, yeah. I thought that was yeah. really yeah. cool. Like, I appreciated that because, like, okay, this is Blofeld. Like, maybe they should have started off with that as, like, the makeup, similar to how Silva was in Skyfall. But... I did appreciate that nod to making him solidified as Blofeld, even though he wasn't the person that I thought should be Blofeld, but I thought it was really cool. I like the scar. I like the image, but I mean, again, you know, the funny thing is, is I don't know if he earned it. You know what I mean? Like that scar wasn't earned at that point. It's kind of like Joker in, in Dark Knight, where it's like, you don't need to know where he got that scar. It's just a part of that character. And, and granted, Blofeld's gone through so many different iterations and so many different actors throughout the Bond franchise that there hasn't really been consistency to it. But yeah. but I, I think they could have used the cat in the earlier sequence when they had everyone together. And that kind of gives the, the hint that the character is Blofeld. I just felt like the, the white Persian showing up in the middle of the torture sequence. I'm like, we already know he's Blofeld. Like, you don't have to pander to the audience here. That's yeah, cool. exactly. Okay, so Blofeld's behind the bulletproof glass. Bond can't get to him. The whole place is rigged to blow. He's got three minutes, and I guess this is the hero's choice again. Either so Madeline is somewhere in the building, and Bond has three minutes, and he can either die trying to save her because he doesn't have enough time, or he can. He's got plenty of time to just get himself out of there and and live with the fact that he let her die. So away he goes. Unfortunately, and the other problem with it is it it comes down to the damsel in distress again, and I hate the damsel in distress trope. So that's something that's got to go. So yeah, that's a problem for me, and I don't like it here because it's already been telegraphed when she, as we've talked about, when you know she left, she's like, I can't watch you die. It's like, okay, well, we know what's going to happen here, so I don't know why we're doing the song and dance, right? Yeah, Yeah, I I think that's where they may have realized that killing off Judy Dench in the previous movie could have been used perfectly here because like later on at the very end of the movie, like he makes a decision, of course, between whether or not he's going to continue with MI6, whether or not he's going to go off with a girl. But this was the moment where it could have set up that decision for him where he has to choose between someone that he cares for within this MI6 organization, like like even if they're thrown in money penny. Like, he has to decide between two people because the decision is, like, he either saves himself or saves the girl, which you know which decision he's going to make. But when it comes to something like this, they didn't add that extra element that would have really solidified the exploration of the character. Like, when you see The Dark Knight, and, like, that was just perfectly played. Like, granted, you kind of knew which decision he was going to make. But it had such a an emotional impact, like when he found out it was the, the wrong location. But this is where it could have really tied in with the ending had they added an element like Money Penny or or yeah. M. Actually, that's a really good point, Andrew. Something I didn't think about. Instead of playing that stupid plot line with Ray Fines with Sea Guy, um, they could have had him here, or Judy Dench didn't die in the last one. 
maybe she just got injured and she's here and you know what would have been more refreshing is she act instead of bond actually rescuing her maybe she even says just go get him you know do your duty just go get him and she dies that would have been more refreshing there would have been at least some more stakes here than just you know okay i'm gonna save save the girl again and then i just don't even want to like also talk about how they both got away they just like what they just jumped down a hole and landed in a convenient net i mean <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong is, is that what happened yeah, that is what happened oh my yeah. god i thought i saw a net i'm saying how did they get down that hole no there oh. was a net there was a net and yeah. he yeah yeah exactly i guess bond would know if there was a net there but yeah that who was... put the net there and why i don't know maybe it was like a safety yeah it, it definitely fell it, it fell flat there's no question about that. Yeah. 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 I was a little confused here as well. It didn't play very well. So again, then we're also cutting between the hacker sequences. C has confronted M in the office, but of course, Ray Fines, being a badass, gets the drop on him, manages to hold him off while Q hacks, hacks into the system and stops the super duper intelligence, whatever, from taking over the world. So Spectre is stopped. So Bond rescues Madeline. They fall into the, the aforementioned net, and away uh, away they go. They manage to escape the old MI, uh, MI6 building by taking a boat conveniently there for some reason into the out of the canal. And uh, we have uh, I I'd have never seen a boat versus helicopter chase before. Have you guys seen this kind of thing before? No, it's usually a helicopter going after a boat. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, good for them for doing some thinking of something different. But again, harken back to another Die Hard movie, Die Hard with a Vengeance. You know, say hello to your brother. One little yeah. shot takes down the helicopter. Uh, it's okay. It's the end of the movie. You got to end it. But I think they could have done something a bit better and more creative here. Yeah, he's got uh, a. It's a pretty good shot. He's got his tiny little gun. Um, I don't think he's making that shot. I, I know it's Bond, but. Uh, that, that's a stretch where he hits the helicopter there, manages to crash it into the bridge. So Bond gets up on the land there. Blofeld crawls his way out of the hel wrecked helicopter. So I'm assuming at this point, if there would be another movie, he would be kind of like in that wheelchair. He'd be disabled. Yeah, probably so. So Bond is on the bridge. He's got his Walter PPK in hand. Blofeld has crawled out of the helicopter wreckage. And the moment of truth, Bond's got the gun to Blofeld's head, blah, blah, blah. Bond decides he wants to be the better man, and he walks away, throws his gun to the river, walks back over to Madeline, and they walk off into the hypothetical sunset, and the end. No, okay. didn't they have the Q scene? What was the, the very end? Q's back in his old digs and... Oh, that's right. oh, right, right, right. He went to get that's the car. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, then it ended. Yeah, yeah then it ended. So... That's Spectre, ladies and gentlemen. So, Andrew, just give me your overall thoughts on the film. Well, I definitely want to touch on the last 10 minutes because I remember leaving the movie theater and I was with a friend in Hawaii when we watched this. And I'm like, if it wasn't for those last 10 minutes, I would have thought higher of this movie. I, I, just, I, think... I just want to point out before you continue, Andrew, I just want to give props yeah. that you actually took time out of your Hawaiian vacation to prepare for this podcast. So, so uh, we know how awesome you are. What's the least uh, you could do, honestly? Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I should have seen an opening night in Honolulu, but I waited a few nights to the point where we could barely move after nearly killing ourselves on a hike. But 
when it came to the ending, I was so thoroughly disappointed with it. And it started with the helicopter being shot down by Bond. Like, literally, in my head, I wanted to stand up and be like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, no, this is yeah. way too stupid to be in a Bond movie. But when I talked earlier about the ties to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I think they could have really solidified the emotional impact of the decision that Bond made because I felt like the ending of the movie was setting it up just like on Our Majesty's Secret Service. And then he'd come back and like shoot her or something? That's all it would have taken, right? Like uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, like one of the, the main reasons why I love it is that here he finds a girl that is able to pull him away from MI6, that he finds a reason to settle down where it changes Bond. And the last sequence, like the very last scene and, and I believe a very last shot is just the image of that bullet hole in the yep. windshield and it changes Bond forever and yeah they kind of did that with Vesper but could you imagine like the emotional impact and the setup for a finale where Blofeld escapes or however it works out and Blofeld takes the one thing that matters most to Bond which is this new girl or for example like takes out M it just yeah, Andrew, that would have been an awesome shot, actually. I mean, maybe a bit on your nose, but if they did that kind of drive-by where Blofeld, whether it's this character or if there's another Blofeld who's the real Blofeld, comes by and gets exacts the revenge, and you said you get that shot, and maybe that last shot, it had been kind of like cool, where that last shot would have been that shot from the trailer where you get the bullet hole with those cracks that appear as the octopus Ooh, arms, yeah. and that's what mm -hmm. you see, and you just hear Bond maybe crying in the background, or it's just silence. I'm actually going to bring up one of you guys' old previous podcasts because I actually did listen to them when you guys were talking about Man of Steel where you guys were discussing about how you felt like it's a setup to Batman versus Superman and that to get, I think, the full appreciation for the movie, you're going to have to see how it ties into Batman versus Superman. And that's where I think I don't want to reserve final judgment for this movie until I see the next iteration of Bond because they could start off the next one where he's driving away with a girl and she gets shot and gets killed. Like, it could just be a setup for this massive movie, however they want to do with Spectre. But I just felt like the capturing of Blofeld was so unnecessary. Like, Blofeld should have escaped, in my personal opinion. Like, it, it was a wasted character. He just ends up being another Bond villain when he is the Bond villain. And I wouldn't, at this point, care if the Craig franchise ended. Yeah, I'm so disappointed by the ending. I have to agree. I think this ending leaves a lot to be desired. The way Blofeld is dealt with is he's been turned into just the other generic villain of the year Bond movie, right? I think this might be the end of the Craig Bond movies. To be honest, it's not a good ending, but now it's kind of like the end of maybe The Dark Knight Rises, where, you know, Batman found a girl, a woman, to go settle down with and not be Batman anymore, and even though you don't have someone taking up the mantle of Bond, there are other double O's out there, and maybe Bond's going off to just be with this girl, and that's the end of it. You I mean, I'm sure you've all heard Craig's comments that he really doesn't care to do another Bond one, whether that's him just being frustrated and tired, or whether that's just, you know, contract negotiations so he can get more money in the future. Who knows? But I think this is an appropriate time to stop it, because I don't know, this gritty, realistic take of Bond... It's a little played. It's a little tired now. I, I need something different. Well, that was going to bring up my next question is, you know, we know what Daniel Craig has said is, at least right now, he's said that he's pretty much done. So if this is indeed the conclusion, how do we feel about the Daniel Craig, James Bond 
uh, four films. Uh, Andrew, do these these hold up? How do you feel about Daniel Craig as Bond and these four films? If it ends on this movie, I will be disappointed. Like I loved Casino Royale, I loved Skyfall, Quantum of Solace. Nope, we're not going to be talking about that. That is definitely not a podcast for rare antiquities. But I, they can't in my mind. They they can't just end it on this because it's just such a sour way to end this franchise that was supposed to reinvigorate the series. And I love Daniel Craig. I love the direction that they had the Bond, but this just felt too much like turning back the clock, too much like one of the later Brosnan films that is one of the reasons why the Bond franchise fell off the face of the earth for the the number of years that it did is that because people were tired of seeing Bond the way that it had been in the past. And I think the way that they treated the audience the way that this movie was such a wasted opportunity to develop the character and the franchise, it really could have been spanned out over two movies. I would be very disappointed if it ended, but I I didn't like this movie. Yeah. Harry? I partially agree with Andrew. I mean, in regards to this movie, it's disappointing. Blofeld has been ruined. Unless they do something new with him in a future movie, if this franchise continues the Craig franchise, will Craig come back? I'm willing to bet he'll come back for one more if I had to put money on it. Because mm-hmm. as uh, Andrew said, it's kind of le- it's made a lot of money, and I, the, the producers want him to do more. I think given time, he'll do more. Craig really doesn't have anything else going for him to begin with, anyways. He's still in pretty good shape, even though his face looks like uh, a dog's breakfast. Well, it did in the first one, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You so know, it's not because he's getting older; it's just because he's ugly. But he I does like, look a I lot like younger that. in Cinderella. I like that look about him. That he looks like the blunt end of a sledgehammer. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's his. I, I kind of like that. It's different, you know. I just think they're dropping the ball on some aspects of Bond that I want to see disappear. I don't want to see this boring, gritty, realistic take because what I've found is a problem. It's been a problem with all the Craig Bond films. Is I think the third final act, that last action sequence, has fallen flat in its face in every single one in my opinion, Skyfall mm. included. Uh, Skyfall is way overrated, in my opinion. I know, Andrew, you like it. There are elements of Skyfall that are very good, mainly with the cinematography. Uh, and the first act, or the first half of the movie, is excellent. Second half is garbage. The minute Silva shows up, it just is gone. Same thing here. The minute Blofeld shows up, the movie is gone. It's dead. It's done. It's not fun anymore. It's not interesting anymore. And it's boring. And surprisingly, I mean, I'd say the last... 20, 30 minutes of Casino Royale, similar, but a little bit more forgivable because it was a good action, still a good action set piece with Vesper drowning, and there was some stakes at play there. You could say the same thing about the end of Quantum. Good action set piece, but it was still a little bit empty, just because the villains weren't as good. So do I want this franchise to continue? No, I don't. I think it should stop here because it's going to be very similar beats being played out here, and I don't need to see that. I need to see a little bit more of the fun injected back into I need a little bit more of a larger feel of an organization, like a larger world threat that's happening back with Bond. I think you need some of those elements of fun back in and you don't get it with the Craig franchise. You just won't. So I think it's a good point to stop here because this movie failed on all accounts, in my opinion. I mean, that's pretty definitive there. That was going to be my next question is. Uh, well, what you do know, you think? Is... You, you, you well, tell us what you think. Let's go to Andrew first. What's the future? Of the franchise. Are there legs left in the Daniel Craig version? Are there legs left in James Bond at all? I think yes for both of them. 
Uh, one, because it made such a tremendous amount of money overseas. Like it's a huge box office success overseas. And, and even here in the United States that I, I think MGM is still MGM. Whoever owns Bond these days, I keep losing track of it. I think for them to not continue the franchise and whatever iteration, whether that's Craig or anyone else, I think would be a mistake on their part because it's, it's a major franchise in cinematic history. I do think, and just thinking about this a little bit more, and I haven't really thought about it too much until tonight, I'm curious, and perhaps this is because I, I like the movie a little bit too much that I'm thinking too much into it, how Bond, this particular movie, may have played out differently had The Winter Soldier not come out. Just because, like, imagine that type of story, but in a Bond franchise where Bond's been working for MI6, and all of a sudden it's revealed that MI6 has been Spectre the entire time and that he's been doing their work. It's a possibility yeah, okay. that I think may have changed the story of Skyfall. That or not confusing Skyfall and, and Spectre, sorry. But it seems like that would have been a perfect way to kind of set up the final movie where Bond realizes at the very end of it, like, imagine M gets revealed to be Blofeld. Yeah. They need something that's a surprise for Bond. They need something that's going to change how people view the franchise. And while as much as I like, I love the Bond movies, I will go watch them every single time they come out. I think it's going to take a lot to make up for this particular movie. It's like Into Darkness. Like the third movie has to be fantastic for me to be able to look past the faults that was Star Trek Into Darkness. And I think that's what's going to have to happen with this fifth Craig franchise movie. But do you think there will be one? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Based upon how much money it's made, I... I don't doubt it at all, whether or not it's the right decision. Yeah, that's beyond my pay grade. Yeah, that's a tough one. Is there going to be another Daniel Craig movie? I think that the odds are likelier that there will not be another Daniel Craig film. Well, there's two reasons. I mean, one, he's getting older, and that doesn't mean that he can't still be Bond, but I think that he's feeling the fatigue, the comments that he's made publicly regarding you know, the franchise and coming back. So uh, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I think he's probably done. What's the future of the franchise? I hate to say that it needs another reboot because it doesn't feel like Casino Royale is all that far in the past, but it needs a shot in the arm for sure. If not a reboot, it needs a revitalization, I think. And I've loved Daniel Craig. I thought he's been great. And I love this idea of Bond as less the suave spy and more of the blunt instrument that he's been in these movies. Yes. I've really enjoyed that. Yes. Really enjoyed that. So if they could continue that, but bring some of the fun back in. I think they tried to do that here. They tried to bring some of the classic elements and some of the fun back. And they didn't quite pull it off. And maybe it's maybe it's not possible with this iteration of, of Bond where he's... See, one thing, Jeff, is you talked about the blunt instrument versus the suave spy. I think yeah. the problem with Craig's movies has been, as you said, he's been too much of the lone wolf. And that arc hasn't... Yeah. He hasn't developed that arc. I was hoping that the whole point of this reboot was to show his origins and then how he became that blunt instrument and he kept killing everybody without getting information in the first two movies. That was kind of what M was always, you know, chastising him about. And he would start learning and developing. He become the bond that we know right. from the past. He hasn't done right. that here. No, what he I, hasn't. And yeah, what I think, right. And what I think they should do is I think that they don't necessarily have to stop this franchise and do a reboot. I just say do a recast if they need to 
and have him start to develop, whether you do it in one movie or a few movies, you do it right. You know, you have to start that character arc because they haven't accomplished that in these movies at all. Yeah. And that's been the but, major yeah. fault here. I think you're absolutely right there. They needed, they don't necessarily need to reboot. They don't even need to recast, but if he can become part of the larger Bond universe and to integrate the, you know, he doesn't need to be the lone wolf anymore. That would probably be the thing to do here. But it is tough to do, you know, movies like this where you have sort of international intrigue. Part of the state of the world is some of this stuff isn't fun anymore. You know, you can't have, it's hard to have generic villains. It's hard to have terrorists as bad guys. I mean, do you have Russians? Do you have Germans? Do you have... You don't need to. You can make up any kind of country you, you want. You can yeah. make it up, but it's still like, there's so many parallels that like, do you, how much do you have to stay away from what's going on in the world? Cause yeah. I think with bond, like either, cause we've talked about this where they talked about, you know, they got the drones and the intelligence and those are present issues in the world today. So does bond need to, cause you gotta do one or the other of these two things. You gotta like get into that shit for real and say something relevant about that and explore that issue in a real way. I don't know if that's Bond's. I don't think that's, that, I don't think I don't, that's Bond's. Or you gotta thing. like completely go way, way, way in the other direction. But that's but what's it's but hard to do that it's nowadays. Hard. It is. I still fail to understand why you can't meet those two extremes. Can't meet in the middle. But they no, they didn't do it here. That's it's all. It, yeah, they did, but it didn't work because it was a no. terrible story to begin with. It wasn't good writing. Wasn't good acting. I actually want to ask you guys to this too. We didn't even really touch on this. What did you think of Christoph Waltz? I know we're getting a segue here. What did you think of Christoph Waltz as a his acting as Blofeld here? Did you think he pulled uh, it off? I, I thought he was terrible. It's. Uh... We, we brought up the Into Darkness comparisons a few times. Um, but I think it was something similar where I like Christoph Waltz. He's fantastic in everything he's doing. He's very cerebral with his acting. Like he is meticulous in like everything he says. Like there is a hidden meaning behind every single line that he has in the movie. And I love how he, he's a scene stealer. And it just didn't feel too much like Blofeld. Like it's. But you know why? So, what, what kind of what I wanted to get it into here is he was still trying to ground the character and that's what it's not just him it's the way the directing and the writing was they're trying to still ground him into this world but you can't have a character like this in daniel craig's bond world that's why i think they should instead of doing a reboot you don't have to you can still recast and find a villain i think specter's gone it's ruined and blofeld is ruined it's done he's just gonna go to jail you should stay away find some other kind of hypocritus noah type guy bring him in reel him in into a gritty world right and grit in a real situation but still have that sense of fantasy and fun you can still take a topic that's relevant star trek did it all the time i mean you can we can argue how well it did it most of the time it was always doing something that was extreme and not realistic relevant to social commentary we could still do that here oh man but you you start talking about star trek though they got into it though and they really pulled stuff apart and examined it deeply. But, but the action is still all unrealistic sci-fi fantasy. But only in the episodes and movies where they weren't pulling apart issues. If you go on the Star Trek way, they're digging into it seriously. It's a parable, a sci-fi parable, but they're digging into shit seriously. And there's Vietnam War stuff there. There's Cold War stuff there. There's homosexuality in there. I mean, there's everything that they, they mean they've they pulled apart everything and they did it seriously. So Bond could go that way, but it's got to, but then it's 
serious and got to get into it. If you want to go the other way where it's fun, and I, I mean, I like the fun, and that's more the Star Wars stuff. There, There's no social commentary in Star Wars. I completely it's, disagree with you. 100%. And we'll get we'll get to that, obviously. The social commentary doesn't exist at all. They're, they're, they're taking some parallels, but they're not commenting on it. Not directly, or, but you don't see. The thing is, is you're looking for something to beat you over the head with it. You no, don't no, have I'm to. not. I'm actually, you can read I'm, in between I'm the looking, lines. No, I'm looking for something to read in between the lines, and that's why Star Trek always works with social commentary, which is great. And again, with Bond, if you go back over the history, they don't do the social commentary. They made cartoons out of the Red Menace. They made cartoons out of the Soviets. They made cartoons out of the bad guys, and it was fun. And when you went with Daniel Craig with Casino Royale, I mean, it was the dark, gritty reboot, and Casino Royale worked great. You know, we all have said we've enjoyed that movie. When they're going past that and they're trying to get into the social issues of today with the dark and gritty stuff, they should probably have sunk their teeth into that a little bit deeper. But what they were trying to do was they were doing that in the movie where they were bringing back some old Bond tropes. And I think that's that's part of why Spectre doesn't work is because they're playing two ends of the spectrum here. They don't get either end of the spectrum well, and they don't meet in the middle, and and that's part of why this film doesn't work. Yeah, they rushed to use Spectre and Blofeld because all of a sudden they, they had the license to use these both the organization and the character, and they're like, oh, we got to throw them into the next movie. But if they had set it up in such a way, like I like having like the plans for the franchises. Like it, when you take a look at how Disney has treated Marvel, each phase you can, you can kind of see like the target that they're they're bringing in terms of all the different movies. And when it comes to Bond, like I would love. It, like the final like if the final scene of the craig franchise was basically like a tie into dr no what we loved about casino royale is that it shows the beginnings of bond it shows like why bond is the cold-blooded bastard that we all love yeah but it, it needs to continue that character development and that's where like quantum of solace skyfall did it a little bit but not as much as i think they wanted it to do with this movie it just it doesn't have that character development that we're wanting to see from bond which made casino yeah. royale so great and yeah. they rushed to use Spectre. The last image could have been like the revelation of Spectre and Blofeld setting up the final movie in the Craig franchise. I guess they kind of did. What bothered me is, you know, you're right. They had We had Casino Royale, which is how Bond became the cold-blooded killer. Casino Royale was the prequel. Yeah. But then they had another prequel, and then they had another prequel, and now we have another. So we have four prequels here to the Bond franchise. Like, the, here's four movies to tell you how Bond became Bond. Oh, you and, know what? And they still didn't get there. And they still didn't get there. But they got there in the first one. They could have just yeah, done semi, that the yeah, first that's one. that's it. That's all they needed. Yeah. All right, so here's a question. Here's the big question. Harry, to you first. Yes! <laughs> Let's say... <laughs> Sorry, you took a while there. No, no. Well, no, I, I just wanted to pause to illustrate the uh, dramatic impact of the question, which is... If this is the end of, let's say this is the end of Daniel Craig's run, is there life left in Bond at all? Yeah, for sure. Bond's a staple of uh, cinema. Lots no. of things are, but that don't continue for 26 movies. But because it has continued for 26 movies, his staying power is there. It's a male fulfillment fantasy witnessing a character like Bond on screen. For all the right and wrong reasons, sex and violence power, escapism, these kind of elements, they're all, you get them in other movies too, but I think that just with a, a break, Bond will come back. 
So you're asking me why you should still be there after 26 movies. Well, I mean, you could have asked him why you should be there after 10 movies and still work. You still get, you can get a new fresh take. You can get it. Even if you don't even get a massive, completely fresh take, you can get a better take on something that's come before. Does it need a break? Yes. I think it should go and hibernate for a few years and then come back with something new, with a new bond. And I just say, continue the franchise. You don't have to reboot it. Just do something different. Andrew, what do you think? Oh, I'm going to be different from Harry on this one. I don't normally say this when it comes to Hollywood, but I think Bond could use remakes. And I think the original Ian Fleming novels are fantastic. And I think they've got so much material that... The novels have been done, though. There's a couple of short stories that haven't, but all the novels have been adapted. So, Andrew, are you saying, like, go remake, like, say, Thunderball again or something like that? I think in order to introduce today's movie audiences, like the newer generation, to Bond... Asking them to go back and watch the Bond movies from the 60s and the 70s. Like, Roger Moore, don't even try. But when it comes to the 60s, there's so much material there that I would love to see a modern reinventing of those particular books. So which, because, which one would you have remade then? I'm also biased. Like, Honor Majesty's... I thought this was a perfect Honor Majesty's Secret Service remake or reimagining. So I would lean towards that one. But any of them with some tying arc between the, the movies... so. With the original Sean Connery movies, like, yes, they do have Spectre. Yes, there is some type of continuity. It's not strong enough, but imagine taking those movies and having a strong continuity with an end goal in sight being the takedown of Spectre. With modern uh, movie making, I think it would be entertaining. But I think that's what the Bond franchise has become, is that they've run out of ideas. It has been, as Harry mentioned, kind of manipulated and skewered by like movies like the Bourne Identity, like the Bourne franchise, Mission Impossible, like just spy flicks today have neutered, I think, what Bond could have been. And so I think mm-hmm. to re reimagine the series, they have to go back, in my opinion, to those source materials that weren't done as well as they could have, but they were done exceptionally well given the the era that they were made in. Yeah, I'm going to say you're probably, if they end the Craig franchise here, they may well, most likely I'd put money, go back and start remaking some of the other ones. But I still think that there's still other places you could still explore. One of the things I love about Goldeneye, for example, is the fact that he had that history with Trevelyan, Sean Bean's character. He was another double O, even though he turned bad. It'd be interesting to see him have relationships with other double O's. Like instead of having Felix Leiter interwoven in some of these scenes, maybe have some other double O's interwoven. There are other ideas you could do here to make the world bigger. That, that's just what I think. They haven't done that yet. And I'm wondering if that's still something that they could... You need the right actor. You need the right story. They could still do something else that's fresh if they really think about it. It's hard to do 20-something movies in. But yeah, I, I agree that they'll probably go back and start remaking some stuff. Who fell off his chair? <laughs> yeah, that, was my, that was my microphone. Sorry, I kicked it. Yeah, what I think is, I think it's it's quite possible that they go and remake an older story for the modern audience. And I'm not opposed to that idea. I think there's some good stories that uh, from, you know, from the classic Bond canon that, that could probably be reworked for today that would probably work. Honestly, what I wouldn't mind seeing is a new story set in the 60s, 50s or 60s. A new movie that's a period piece in the Cold War. You won't get... I think, it'd be interesting. You'll never get that with today's audience. People won't go. Yeah, I mean, possibly we would not. I can tell you right now, marketing uh, would not approve that idea. It'd be done. Well, marketing doesn't approve movies, though. I wouldn't say marketing, but like they, whoever is the creative consultants 
still know what's going to market to the demographic today. And you're not going to get, they're going to get guys like you to go see the movie. They're not going to get 20 somethings and teens to go see the movie. So that's done. Honestly, I think you're wrong. The only reason why I think you're wrong is there've been examples of that. If you, you look at the Marvel universe and you look at Captain America, the first Captain America movie. Wasn't very good. Was a period piece though. Harry, I liked you up until this point. Yeah, I mean, Todd, that was was one of the best ones. The first Captain America was... uh, The elements of it were good. I I liked the Winter Soldier, but I didn't like that one. It had nothing to do with it being a period piece. It just wasn't a good movie. This is a conversation. It wasn't a great movie, but the fact that they did that, I thought was... That showed that it can be done. Like, you can go Uh, back to another time period. If it was successful. It was successful. It it made money, but it wasn't successful in terms of what a superhero franchise needed. You didn't... No. But it was successful. It was the linchpin. It made the whole thing possible of what we're witnessing Aven- now. Aven- Avenger- it. Avengers made it possible, man. If Avengers no, no, wasn't successful, Avengers, you wouldn't have seen another Captain Avengers America movie. Avengers was possible because Captain America worked. No, Avengers was possible because Iron Man worked. Well, and Iron f- Man was the was the catalyst. But without Captain America there working, it, it wouldn't have happened. It would have fallen apart. I think, Jeff, the direction that you're going in terms of like Marvel's ability to use period movies, I will use, and I know it hasn't been as widely successful as it could have been, but how they've done Agent Carter. And like the, it's yeah. a series that is founded on the 40s, and I think the next one's going to be in the 50s. And I think that's where Bond, it's missing that Cold War element or that opposing country where like you take a look at how a movie like uh the spy who loved me was done where it was like a collaboration between the two different countries like there still was that animosity but i I think bond is missing that spy versus spy element that made it so successful to begin with and by bringing it back and it's i think it's a fantastic idea jeff whether or not marketing agrees with it and pushes it forward i think that would be an amazing reinvigoration of the series to have it based in the 60s because there's so much I, that you can do with it at that point. I think there's a lot that you could do there that hasn't been touched on. I'm not saying that it's a likely thing that's going to happen, but... I'd yeah, love to see it. Be, it won't happen. That would be a good place for it to go. That would be a good place for it to go. It won't happen. should happen. It won't happen. Okay, well, I think we've exhausted Spectre. I think we've brought it to a close here. Andrew, any final thoughts on either Spectre or the franchise? I think really to. As I, I mentioned earlier, I think to get a better appreciation, hopefully, for the movie, ask me about how I think of this movie two to three years from now if another Bond movie is created. It was disappointing. I walked out of that movie theater confused and like, oh, how do I think about that? And after talking to you guys, it kind of reaffirmed that it was it was a letdown. It, there was a lot of hype for this movie using Spectre. I, I think even just using the name of the organization in the movie, it yeah, I had higher hopes for the the Craig franchise, and while I don't think it'll end, this is probably the right time for it to to, to do so. Yeah, Harry, uh, final thoughts on Spectre? Like I'm pretty sure you guys are gonna say, and as Andrew kind of hinted at, disappointing, especially when you get the rights to Spectre and Blofeld. When you start making the universe so small, that was the greatest flaw of this movie is that Oberhausen, Blofeld, whoever this half brother of this guy is, is related to Bond. It just destroys what's come before. The universe is made so much smaller, and it's just a dumb plot. And it's insulting to fans. Just like Skyfall was, it's a wonderfully shot film. Beautiful to look at, but the coincidences and the conveniences just destroy the movie. It's a, like With Skyfall, it's a weak second half of the film. 
Silva is a terrible villain. We won't get into that here if you guys agree or disagree. Blofeld, Ogenhausen, whatever his name is, he's a terrible villain as well here. It's not really done very well at all. The ending wraps up very poorly. I mean, it's worth a watch because it is still such such a gorgeous movie to watch, but it's not a recommend, not at all. I'll just give you my ranking. I Obviously, Casino Royale is my favorite, followed by Quantum. Followed by this, then followed by Skyfall. Whoa, Quantum that high? The reason why I like Quantum is, yeah, I agree. The villain, is it Green? His name Green? Even though he's not the greatest villain, I enjoyed the last action set piece more than this movie. And I felt that the female character in that movie was the strongest out of all the female characters here. Even though I like Vesper, I thought whatever her name is in that movie, it's been so long since I've seen it. I felt that her storyline, even though it wasn't deep, it was a little stronger in terms of a female representation. I also like the fact that, you know, she and Bond didn't hook up, so that was refreshing. And I like the last action set piece. And I like the introduction of Quantum because they didn't have the rights to Spectre. So at the time, it was exciting. Oh, this is the new Spectre. You know, because we all knew as audience members, they didn't have the rights to it. So it's like, okay, this is Spectre. This is cool. I like how he's starting to get into it. It seemed like there was a bigger world unraveling to Bond and to MI6. And that made that sense of dread there. And it wasn't painted. All those threads were still loose by the end of the movie. And I liked that. And that's why it's up there for me. But for, for Spe- Spectre itself, terrible. Not a recommend. Not even close. Nope. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll give my picks here. Casino Royale, number one with a bullet by far for sure uh then i'd say a skyfall at number two specter at number three and quantum of solace at, at number four and and the reason for that i think is quantum of solace was just entirely forgettable for me just didn't really come together skyfall and specter both uh, having much the same filmmaking crew same director both beautiful films, as Harry said, beautiful films to look at, wonderfully shot. They look great. Skyfall had story problems for sure, and Spectre even more so, as we've talked about here. But they, they had the, the visual dynamic that can kind of put it over the edge, whereas Quantum of Solace, had this, I think, had the same story problems and wasn't quite as gorgeous to look at. As far as this film on its own, Spectre, is it a recommend? I guess you got to watch it if you're a Bond fan, don't you? I mean, you got to see everything. Uh, unfortunately, no, it, it doesn't really doesn't really hold up other than being a great film to look at from, this, from a cinematography perspective. And Daniel Craig, I think, still puts in a good performance as James Bond. And I, I love his take on the character. This is a disappointment, unfortunately. I'm nervous about the future of the franchise because of it. My yeah, is the yeah. exact same as yours, Jeff. It is Casino Royale by far. I think Vesper is definitely the best Bond girl of the, the Craig franchise. I think Le Chief was a underutilized villain. And that's where, like, now thinking about it, when you look across the four Craig movies, there wasn't a villain. I think Silva is better than Harry makes him out to be. But there wasn't a villain that was truly memorable. Like, Le Chief, in the mm. very few scenes that he was in, was really good. And then they killed him off. Like, what the? No, what? No. He was kind of a henchman, wasn't he? Like, he wasn't my villain. He was like a henchman. Yeah. But overall, that movie, I think, was spectacular. I think it was the best way to, to reinvent a franchise. Skyfall number two, followed, of course, by this movie and, and with Quantum of Solace. But when it comes to recommending this movie, like, I, I at Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday, yes, that's American Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday. I was talking to my old roommates, and they don't get out to see movies very often. They were listing out all the movies that they wanted to see, and the top of their list was Spectre. 
And I looked at him like, if you're not going to get, if you get like one movie night a month, it pains me to say like, don't go watch the Bond movie. You can wait until this comes out on Blu-ray. But this is not a movie that needs to be seen on the big screen. It's not a movie that I would rush out to see again, which sucks because I, I love the Bond franchise, but it just, it wasn't a good movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up for Spectre and the Bond franchise for this day. Harry, do you want to tell our listeners what we have in store for them next time? In anticipation for the big event movie of the year, The Force Awakens, we are going to do two retrospective podcasts back-to-back. I mean, not back-to-back at the same time, but the next two will deal with the Star Wars original trilogy, followed by the Star Wars prequel trilogy. So we'll go take a look at back at those two trilogies and analyze them appropriately. Look at the strengths, the weaknesses, the influence on the genre. See if they still hold up today. I'm sure we'll have some interesting conversations for both. And for the first time, we are, uh, you know, getting close to a gangbang territory. Uh, we're going to be, <laughs> um, we're going to be expanding from three two guests, so three people in the same room to four. So Andrew, I'm hoping you'll be joining us for the next two. I am in, unless you guys were completely tired of my bantering on this movie. I had an absolute ball. So to be a part of the next two podcasts going over the Star Wars trilogies, I would absolutely love to be a part of it. Yes. We'll also bring back Nathan, who was a previous guest of ours for the Superman retrospective. So this will be a first for us, and I'm looking forward to it. It is going to be a a sci-fi fantasy gangbang for sure. The (laughs) four of us going to town. It's going to be an extra long episode, I assume. So... Ladies and gentlemen, block it in your calendars. Set yourselves. Set your phasers to fun. Oh, my God. (laughs) And turn it into a drinking game every time Harry mentions Jar Jar or does a Jar Jar impression on the podcast. Because, oh, my God, you are about to get wasted. You are going to get many. We're going to do a contest on the next episode for the number of times that I can say the word unsettled. And that will be the big drinking game. But it's going to be fun. And Andrew, thanks for being on the show, man. It was it was a lot of fun. We really appreciate the time. Uh, so we'll we'll catch you in the next uh, couple episodes. Harry, thanks again. You're welcome. And, uh, we'll, we'll we'll see you on the flippity flip. Sounds good. You guys have a good night. Thanks All a lot right. for having me, guys. No problems. A pleasure having you. Have a good night, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye.